going to speak to the police. Then tell them that there's something happening in this airport that may endanger human lives. Things are not always what they seem. Comedian tours are not quite what they seem either. I believe comedian tours to be merely a front, a cover. For what? For the mass kidnapping of young people. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're exploring this classic series from the beginning to see what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're talking about the 1967 story, The Faceless Ones. I'm your host, and I like to send my postcards from the edge. <laughs> my co-host is Guy, and I don't want to be rude, but I think he could use a bit of a nip and tuck, if you know what I mean. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, this is a story where two episodes survive, but a little bit unusually, because in the past, like with Reign of Terror, right, they um, only animated the missing episodes. And that was both interesting, but I've always said that I kind of prefer the consistency of just animating them all, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, they did animate them all, although if you get the Blu-ray, you can watch the two live episodes uh. as well. And uh, this is clearly the same company that animated the last one we Yeah, watched. yeah. It is a sort of Archer style again. Yeah, and it's it's pretty good animation. A couple of flaws, but overall it's pretty good. <laughs> one of the things mm -hmm. that uh, is a little wonky about it if you're really, you know, looking into it, and I'm these days I'm very much an animation wonk, so I look at these things. Um, most of the characters can only be straight on or, like, maybe turned 90 degrees. What they can't do is they can't look sideways at somebody, right? So you do have these, a lot of different scenes where one character is l essentially looking past the other character because they're looking, you know, they're basically at a, a straight on to the viewer. Oh, um, yeah. Well, the other character is, you know, behind them, but they can't look at them. <laughs> so so there's a couple of fucking things like that. But overall, it's really well done. And, and like when the... The last one, they, you know, they do a lot of directing work. They do a lot of camera movement and other things. So it's not just like set shot and, you know, and all that. Um, so pretty good. And uh, I'm going to say up front, I don't know if you've watched this. I, mean, I know it's uh, maybe one we should watch. Uh, but I'm going to say Doctor Who predicted Die Hard 2. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have seen it. I've seen the original Die Hard a few times, but uh, I don't think right, I've well, seen it. Well, of course, Die Hard, Die Hard 2 isn't as good as Die Hard, but it is a lot of fun. It's it's absolutely worth watching. We'll, we'll, and, and we have one of my proposed topics for us, if we can ever get to it, is to watch like um, the first, the number one of all the Die Hard inspired movies. So, you know, it's Die Hard and Speed and... Um, Mm -hmm. uh, a couple other ones uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, and then watch the the second one of each of them and see you know how they uh, how they did having a sequel. Uh -huh. um, well, Die Hard Two is Die Hard in an airport. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know the Ben Stiller show. It was like a thing. I think it was maybe on Fox. Yeah, back it was an amazing show. Oh my god, the uh, cast of that by the way, they, like every mm -hmm. cast member in that, you know, became like a huge comedian or actor that came whatever, well yeah. known yeah it was what bob odenkirk mm -hmm. janine garofalo mm -hmm. andy dick i think mm -hmm. those were the main players with uh with ben stiller mm -hmm. uh but uh yeah i i've watched all those episodes uh a few times <laughs> so even now it's been a few years since the last time i watched it uh but uh i'm still pretty familiar with it and i remember they had a skit that was like 
even back in the 90s, they had already made a good slew of diehard movies, I guess. And uh, so they, they had this, one of their skits was, uh, you know, the latest diehard movie that was like, how many times can this keep happening to the same guy? Well, totally tangential. Another favorite of mine from that, if you saw it, was their uh, Medieval Cops show. Did you ever see that? Medieval Cops. Oh, that rings a bell. It's yeah. It's been a while since I yeah, saw it was that a great one. But skit, that was... Yeah. That was, I think that they had the, there was a fifth guy who they brought in, uh, and I don't remember what his name was. I think it was something Irish, but I could be wrong, but, but I, 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 I vaguely remember it, but uh, I don't, yeah, that's one I'd have to go back and check out again before <laughs> I can say too much about it. To a disturbing the peace call from over the next Shire. Yeah, we usually get a couple of these calls a night, mostly local kids all hopped up on me playing chicken on a jousting field trying to impress some mate. That ain't no jousting match. Come on, Johnny. Okay, so, uh, yeah, this is Doctor Who in an airport. <laughs> I think they chose an airport. Well, or just, Die Hard in an airport. Or no, well, it's, I'm saying it's also it's, Doctor Who in an airport. It's yeah. Doctor Who in an airport. Okay, you're right. Um, so, and it's interesting, they've, uh, I'm not really giving away any spoilers here, but We've gone through three episodes so far, and it seems like, well, Polly hasn't had much independent action in these episodes, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> but it seems, I don't recall either her or uh, Ben, you know, trying to ascertain whether or not this is like <laughs> 1967 Britain, which has been a priority for them. Well, you know, that's a really good point. They missed an opportunity there because they've had a running almost joke about it, right, that one of them thinks that they're in modern-day England every time they they land, and this time they actually are. And, in fact, um, the reason they chose the Gatwick Airport was to provide a very modern setting, right? In fact, um, Hmm. this is one of those scripts that happens, right, where it kicks around for years and they never got around to making it. So it was originally supposed to be a Hartnell script, and it was going to take place in a shopping mall. And then, you know, they changed it to an airport. And it's funny because both um, the Gatwick Airport and Heathrow Airport approved them filming there. And Heathrow would be the more prestigious place, but they charged hmm. more. So this being nah. Dr. New, they went with the cheaper Yeah, money. yeah, sure. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> All right, so let's head into episode one. So after a plane takes off at the Gatwick Airport, you know, in Britain, we see the TARDIS materialize on the tarmac. As the crew exits the TARDIS, and I would be very curious what this looked like live. I don't even remember if this one of the live episodes we have to go check. Because there's a plane attempting to land, and it has to pull up due to the TARDIS materializing. <laughs> so, of course, in animation, you could do that. But I'd be curious to see what it looked like uh, when they were doing it live. I, pre- oh, I assume yeah. they just had shots of an airplane in a couple different yeah, angles. Yeah, they just <laughs> cut back and forth between the TARDIS, probably. But I actually experienced this in my last plane trip. So, uh, coming back oh. into Cleveland from a trip, we were literally seconds from landing. It wasn't in Cleveland. It was like in a connection place. But we were seconds from landing, and it was like in the middle of the night, and I'm sort of half asleep, and I'm looking out the window. And all of a sudden, we pull up again, and it turned out the and, – and the pilot didn't say anything. You know, we just pulled up and then flew around for another 10 or 20 minutes, and eventually the pilot said, 
that there was a plane ahead of us that hadn't finished taxiing off the runway. So I don't think it would have been an accident, but, you know, they just have a policy of the other planes not fully oh, sure. off the runway. You don't land. So so at the last right. second, he took it up again. So that was definitely an interesting experience. Uh so there's a, by the way, I'm going to have a lot of digressions and it's not <laughs> unlike usual, but, uh, it's all right. I may, uh, we may have to take a break in a moment for me to get a drink here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the TARDIS is materialized. The crew is exited An English Bobby spots the crew on the runway and yells at them. And the doctor tells everyone scatter. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> Actually, I think this is the first Doctor Who story where in the first shot we get, you know, let's separate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but a general tip, because I'm I'm obsessed right now with watching crime YouTube videos and everything. So <laughs> mm. over and over again, you see people who are being pulled over for a traffic stop and they have like an out-of-date tag or you know, whatever. And they take off. Ooh. Well, you've now just turned a $50 ticket or maybe even just a warning. You've now turned into a felony. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't run from the police. It just makes whatever you were going to get in trouble for worse. <laughs> and you may get shot. <laughs> so, yeah. That was a possibility. So there's a commandant in charge of the airport. It's a little odd to me because I, I don't really understand an airport being run by a commandant, but you know, I guess that's how this works here. <laughs> it's probably, I, I mean, just as a random guess, I'd think that, you know, a lot of people who go into commercial aviation have some military right. experience, so maybe it comes from that. <laughs> yeah. But he doesn't believe the pilot's report that there was a police box, you know, that kept him from landing. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> he asked the police to check it out. And uh, now this is a rare case where I, I gave you a heads up on a pop quiz, but we have seen this commandant before. And I even recognized him through the animation <laughs> to che and checked it out. Do you recall hmm. where we've seen this guy before? You know, I, uh, I didn't look it up, uh, and I could be way wrong here, but since you gave me a heads up, I did think about it for a minute. And from the animation, I couldn't recognize him, but I saw there's like a, a on the server that we used, uh, or that I used <laughs> to watch the video, I saw um, there was a picture of some of the main characters, mm -hmm. and you know, there was a picture of the original actor, and I'm thinking, I can't. I, I'm thinking he might have been one of the number twos in the prisoner. <laughs> you are right. So it's Colin Gordon, and he actually had the distinction of being a, one of the only two actors to be a number two twice. Um, so he was, remember, ABC, and then uh, and spacing on the name of the second one. But he was the one where the second time around, uh, you know, the prisoner sort of destroys him, right? Uh and remember, it makes it seem like he was the one um, doing everything. He had he had like a masked face, and and number six unmasks him and uh, shows the you know whoever is in charge that he was responsible for everything. Sure. Oh, he was he the guy with the glasses? There was yeah. like a little medieval village type thing yeah. that they went yeah. into. Okay, yeah, I vaguely. Yeah, and he it's basically been a wears the same now. glasses here. That's kind of why I, re I recognized him. So. Ah, anyway, that so, might be why I did too. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a good actor and gets around in these things and playing basically the same role here. In fact, I've made a note later on. I don't know if they, 
uh, I didn't look at the dates to see if, if the prisoner had always already occurred, but if not, there's an amazing thing here because there's a point where someone is calling the commandant or he's calling someone else about him and he says, number two, I mean, number one has gone to do this. So he's referring to the commandant as number one, but he accidentally says number two up front. And that's why I felt like that. Could that be a reference or is it? And if it's not a reference, it's an amazing mistake because (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Huh. Very good. <laughs> so, like I said, lots of digressions. So, okay, so uh, they've split up. Uh, Polly is walking around alone, and she, and oh, I, well, when we get there, I'll say something about maybe why Polly didn't have the same amount of uh, agency she sometimes does. Uh, she's walking around alone. She sees a cop and ducks into a door labeled Chameleon Tours, a little, you know, actually pretty good little chameleon logo on it. Yeah. Oh, no, uh, let me inter- interrupt you here. Um, with the police, uh, I see your note about the having the police box towed away. Don't we see it in the back of the, a truck or something like that? Yeah, Just we're a brief second. And Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. But uh, the reason that caught my eye is because when I saw that, I was thinking of that scene in Marco Polo. (laughs) Same uh, basic thing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. They, in that case, I mean, they don't, the TARDIS stays in the story in that case, but they are carting it around in a cart. In this case, they're carting it around on a truck. So yeah. And uh, my note on that is, you know, it's always good for a Doctor Who story to get rid of the TARDIS. So they can't, so that (laughs) you don't have to say, why didn't they just get in the TARDIS and leave? Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That always seems to be the doctor's conscience kicks in. Right. For some reason. (laughs) Star Trek had that too, right? Because of the, um, uh, the transporter, you always had the question, why don't they just transport out? So then what they'd always have is an ion storm. Oh, the transporter's not working. <laughs> oh, yeah, or the, the flux capacitor <laughs> is on the fritz or whatever. Yep. So Polly is walking around alone. She sees a cop. She ducks into this door labeled Chameleon Tours. And, you know, one of the purposes of our podcast is to help criminals succeed. So you know, <laughs> here's a tip for the criminals that – that they're really bad at in Doctor Who, which is don't name your front companies based on your crime. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good, good tip. That's like uh, in the Simpsons, the the mafia had this uh, had this bar they called the the Honest Businessman's Club <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> so inside this, uh, what turns out, I guess we find is a hangar. Um, Polly sees a man walking with an envelope, and then another man shoots him. With a strange gun that doesn't shoot bullets, but rays. You might even call it a ray gun. <laughs> yeah. And this, that, that scene, it was pretty quick, but it was kind of grim. I mean, the guy's face got all veiny and yep. it was, uh, look, didn't look pleasant. <laughs> the attacker then covers the corpse with a tarp and he takes the large envelope and he opens a secret wall in an office and goes into a room filled with computer-like machinery and using a monitor screen, he reports to another man that someone found the postcards. And I, I will say, by the way, even though they talk about the postcards here and, and the postcards are all throughout this first few episodes, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to that. So I missed a whole lot of plot points. And when I watched the episodes again, it was like, oh, yeah, they were talking about this all the time. <laughs> I just wasn't paying <laughs> attention. But one of the things I'll say about this story, for better or for worse, for um, I mean, I think it makes it better, but if you're watching it week by week, it would be hard to remember. There's a whole lot of clues and red herrings and stuff going on 
they don't explain it episode after episode. So again, when you're waiting a week between episodes, you know, that's pretty interesting to have these things that they don't really explain to you. Oh yeah. So the postcards is one of those, uh, an alarm sounds and he switches the monitor to see Polly examining the body. And so he goes back into the other room and follows after her with a gun, but she heads outside and there's other cops around. So he gives up. Meanwhile, the commandant is amazed to find out that it really was a police box on the runway. <laughs> and he demands <laughs> accountability from the chief of police, but of course they don't know what he's talking about. They do tell him that four suspects ran away from it. The commandant demands that immigration let him know if any suspicious characters show up. So immigration mm-hmm. being basically, I think more we call customs now. We don't usually call them immigration but mm-hmm. in an airport. Uh, Polly finds the doctor and Jamie hiding under a plane's forward wheel. <laughs> I'm not sure how she found them. And she tells him what she saw. And uh, another, you know, here's another kind of tip for, for you know, stupid plane tip. This <laughs> is, don't try to travel in a plane's wheel well. You know, there was a guy trying to escape something and he thought it was clever to get inside a wheel well. And what happened? He froze to death and fell off of it. You know, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's pretty cold up there. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, D.W. Cooper, you know, who knows? Maybe he survived. So, uh, <laughs> or D.B. Cooper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm thinking of the D.W. Uh, spray or the. Anyway. <laughs> D.W. Griffith, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's Who's D.W. Griffith? Oh, the yeah, director. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. yeah and WD-40 right. is yeah. the spray. All, all three of those things were, were swirling around in my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then we see t- two bad guys examining the body that got shot. It turns out that this was Inspector Gascoigne. Gascoigne, I think. Yeah, Gascoigne. Yeah, They arranged to dispose of the body, and it turns out that when all this started happening, you know, and that guy showed up and then Polly showed up, one of them was putting luggage into some kind of machine that does something to make it disappear, and so he returns to doing that. This is another little thing where they don't explain it at all, but it turns out to be, you know, make sense as we go along. Um, I'm guessing it's related to the end of episode three. Well, Well, they have these... People who are supposedly traveling somewhere and they got to do something with their luggage, right? So, but again, they don't, they show this very early on. They don't explain it. You would really have to watch the show more than once to notice this, right? Right. Meanwhile, on the monitor, they see that Polly, the doctor, and Jamie are in the hangar where the body was and they're looking for the body. And then they find it. And the doctor says that this guy was electrocuted. So he asked Polly about what kind of gun it was. And, Turns out it's a gun that was invented in the future, so mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least the in humanity invented it in yeah. the future. And they head out to find the main airport building so they can report the murders. Now, one big difference between this doctor and some later doctors is, and maybe even Hartnell, is that he's so in general, Doctor Who is associated with being anti authoritarianism, right? Or authoritarian, mm. he doesn't like management. But, you know, here it's like, oh, we found a body. Let's go find management, which is not usually a doctor thing to do. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And as the doctor and Jamie are walking on, they don't notice that, you know, the renderer pops out and blasts Polly with some kind of uh, spray and drags her away. Yeah, they're walking past some hangers and stuff, and the guy just, she's she's lagging behind a little bit, so... (laughs) 
He, he grabs her. In the bad guy control room, Polly refuses to cooperate, and then they see the doctor and Jamie looking for her on the monitor. And so the doctor and Jamie go to immigration and ask for someone in authority. <laughs> and uh, Here's another one of my digressions. So the last time I flew to England, <laughs> I was presenting my passport to basically this guy, right, in immigration slash customs. And, you know, they ask you a few questions, and he said, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be meeting some friends here. And he freaked out. <laughs> hmm. It was like I had announced I was on a jihad. He was like, friends, huh. <laughs> are they on the same flight? Are they already here? <laughs> and I'm like, eh, it's some people who live here in England, and I'm coming to visit them. You know, that's what people do. <laughs> but I re- you know, it just it reminded me just how easy it is to, like, screw yourself up in these cases. I know of a, a woman who was um, traveling around, and she was doing a whole bunch of different trips, and she – visited her boyfriend in the U.S., but she's from Australia, and then she did some other trips. And then before she went back to Australia, she wanted to visit her boyfriend one more time. And this person, you know, this immigration person just said, oh, I think you're trying to get a job here and you're not going to leave, so I'm not letting you in. So she then had to buy that day a very expensive plane flight to Australia that she hadn't planned for, right? I mean, because she had a ticket already at a later date. Um, and there was nothing she could do about it. I mean, they can just say you're not coming in. And, you know, so this is my, my digression from the digression. <laughs> uh, one time I was going to Israel. And on the kind of U.S. side of it, there was a U.S. soldier uh, reviewing my paperwork and asking me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm here to train people. I worked for Apple and I was training Apple employees um, in Israel. And it really shocked me because this, this soldier says, well, I hope you're not training these people to take our jobs. Like, okay, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That that could be, I don't know how he said it. It sounds to me like it could be the kind of thing that it was meant to be just sort of a you know funny quip. Yeah, but I don't think so. It could be wrong. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, Anyway, the immigration guy insists on passports from the doctor and Jamie. And now this makes no sense. Uh, the doctor doesn't know what a passport is. <laughs> okay, we're talking about this like nine hundred year old guy who's been around in time all over the place and done all this stuff, and he doesn't know what a passport is. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's especially especially odd considering that um, it's pretty much self explanatory. Yeah, it lets you pass through the port. <laughs> So after lots of back and forth, the doctor insists on seeing someone in authority to report the dead body. And the immigration guy says he's sure they'll have plenty of time to talk to someone in authority. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he calls the commandant and tells him he has two of their suspects, you know, probably related to that whole police box thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ben has been out on his own. In fact, Ben has not been part of the story so far. (laughs) So he suddenly shows up and he manages to stumble into the same chameleon tours hangar. So on this whole huge airport, everybody's going to the exact same little door. <laughs> yeah, maybe they have a sign that says free candy or something. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he enters and he encounters Captain Blade, kind of the main bad guy. And he, Captain Blade has just been nailing closed a large box. And this captain, he's uh, he's dressed as a pilot, at least in the animation mm-hmm. he is. So I'm not sure if captain is in 
it is actually his rank within his own shadowy organization. <laughs> you know, it might just be because well, he's a pilot. Captain Blade is his, yeah, that that's his pseudonym, right? I mean, where he's, yeah. he's he, he, he announces himself as the head pilot at some point of the chameleon tours. Right. Um, in the immigration area, Jamie and the doctor are telling the commandant crazy stories about disappearing people and ray guns. <laughs> so the commandant's not very impressed. But he agrees to go with them to the hangar that has the dead body. Meanwhile, the immigrations guy calls the commandant's office to let them know what the commandant is doing. And that's where I mentioned he says, number two, I mean, number one is going to look for this dead body. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we now know who number one was all along. (laughs) (laughs) In the hangar, Captain Blade is putting a stamp on a postcard allegedly from Paris and uh, just related to what I was saying earlier, there's all this postcard stuff, and I just I just didn't pay enough attention to it the first time. <laughs> and meanwhile, the bad guys apparently are processing Polly, and they say they can take another on the next flight. So we don't know what all that means. But <laughs> then Captain Blade opens a cabinet, and a bandaged arm flops out, and then he injects the body with something. And we see the doctor and Jamie arrive in the chameleon hangar with the commandant and surprise, the body is gone. I mean, is there any, any TV show or story in history where when you show up, the body is still there. (laughs) (laughs) And the only thing the doctor has is a postage stamp he found in the dead guy's pocket. And the commandant isn't impressed with the doctor says, it's Spanish and unused. <laughs> he treats this as very significant and he won't let go of that fact. <laughs> and the doctor then finds some burnt fibers on the ground. And again, the commandant. And mm-hmm. I think he says uh, these could only have been made by a ray gun, <laughs> which <laughs> probably does not inspire confidence. In yeah, the and the commandant part. is not impressed by any of this, you know, stamps and burnt fibers. <laughs> The doctor concludes that given the missing body somewhere, there must be a large packing case. So he's sure that, you know, and we saw earlier the captain uh, nailing shut a packing case. So Jamie points out a nearby packing case. And at this moment, Captain Blade shows up and he's fine with them opening it. He even gives them a crowbar. Actually, he gets a crowbar and opens it himself and gets what's inside. Plastic cups. (laughs) 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 Actually... From a shipping perspective, I'm thinking, you know, it's not really productive to ship plastic cups this way, but maybe, who knows? <laughs> I mean, well, any kind of large airline is going to use a whole lot of plastic cups because uh, I think every flight I've ever been on has uh, served, you know, they'll put down a little clear plastic cup and fill it with a half a can of Coke or whatever. Well, you're right that if it were for an airline, but if it were for the airline, you probably wouldn't put it inside a nailed up box. Right? So, well, yeah, yeah, probably a cardboard box would be yeah. adequate. Yeah, this seems to be for shipping, and I just think that you know you're going to pay more for the the wood on that thing than it's worth it for the cups. Uh, but the commandant decides his mission now is investigating the doctor and company. After they all leave, Captain Blade tells his colleague, uh, and I never quite got his name or I should have looked it up, so I keep calling him the other guy. But anyway, he tells his colleague to bring him down, and he's presumably talking about that bandaged guy we just saw a bit earlier. So they escort this bandaged guy, except he's also 
covered in a pilot's uniform with a hat over his head. So that you, it's it's actually very much like that. What was it weekend at Barney's or whatever? Bernie's. Oh, weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that. So there. Um, you know, a friend of mine in high school, we actually invented Weekend at Bernie's uh, a little bit before the movie actually <laughs> came out. Our our version was called Me and the Sheriff, you know, where the <laughs> the, the sheriff's transporting the prisoner. Uh, he manages to handcuff himself to the uh, sheriff uh, and then has to kill the sheriff. So <laughs> then he's just uh, walking around with his <laughs> dead sheriff. Let's see. So they're walking this guy along who's, you know, totally out of it. Uh, and they're sort of holding onto his arms. And apparently he is reaching the suffocation point. Meanwhile, at immigration, the commandant is calling for someone to handle the doctor and Jamie. And then Polly walks in. Except Polly now insists she has no idea who the doctor and Jamie are. She's never met them before. Her name isn't Polly and she's from Zurich. <laughs> she's a gnome. Then in another scene, the mysterious man is escorted into a room somewhere. They remove the bandages, and we see some kind of mottled skin covering him, and it's the end yeah, of now, the episode. <laughs> I have a question for you on that. Uh, did that remind you of any screen uh, monsters we've seen in the past? Hmm. It, mm -hmm. um, it could just be my reaction. But. Uh not particularly. I mean, I had a general challenge here, which is I don't think the animation does a good job at this. Um, mm. It looks like he's wearing like a stocking or something with different colors on it. And I went and, and I looked on Google at screenshots of the actual character people. And what they actually had was more like a very um, lizard-like skin or something, right? I mean, it was, ah. you know. And, and so I think the animation in this case was confusing. Um, oh, okay. but other than sort of invisible man style stuff, uh, I, uh, I'm not sure. So what are you thinking of? Okay. What it reminded me of, uh, was they live because you've got these sort of patterns of like, mm. it, mm. to me, it looked mm. like the skin webbing with like big holes in it, uh, with other right. colored skin underneath it. And then the eyes looked like they were kind of, uh, recessed in, you know, the, they live creatures had mm. those big silvery insect like eyes uh that was that was the impression i got yeah I, I think you could see that in the animation i think the actual look of it wasn't really like that but uh i can see yeah. that for the animation yeah. okay so that's the end of our episode so we resume where we left off we're in this uh medical room uh in chameleon tours the the pilots uh in quotation marks you know these sinister pilots they're walking this guy in uh all wrapped up in a big trench coat like the invisible man and everything we saw at the end of the last show and we see there's a regular guy uh lying nearby just your ordinary human uh and then meanwhile, we go to Immigration Desk 5. This is where, uh, what's his name, the Commandant, he's calling, uh, or he's not yet calling anybody, but uh, but he's talking to Polly uh, and the Doctor and Jamie, and Polly claims not to know them. She's Swiss, uh, and this is her first visit to England, and I have to give him a little bit of kudos here because uh, a plot hole occurred to me that uh, they filled in right away, which is, of course, you know, she's English, so she's going to sound very English. But uh, 
when one of them calls her on it, she says that she had an English governess and she learned her <laughs> English well from her. So, uh, all right, I guess I can see. I it. didn't even notice that comment, but I did notice that they have a lot of different English accents in this. And, you know, maybe I'm getting better at listening to them as we go along. You know, I don't really know how to recognize different English accents, but I tell they have a yeah. lot of different ones. And I know one thing we as, you know, uh, <laughs> Americans uh, uh, miss out on is that various English accents mean something different about your social status, your social economic status, right? And so we oh, sure. we can't tell when that's the case. But <laughs> Yeah, to some extent. I mean, usually, I mean, I'm sure it depends on just how much British culture you've absorbed. You know, but I mean, usually if you get somebody with a Cockney accent, that's mm -hmm. kind of a lower class type thing. Mm -hmm. you know, but Not always, but. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure for people in other countries, uh, some of the American accents probably pose the same problem when they're trying to code something, you know, like you have a Brooklyn cabbie or whatever. You know. <laughs> yeah, so one, one of the mistakes, at least historically, especially that the British have made, is to um, always go for a Texas accent to represent an American. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're actually pretty rare, at least uh, in Ohio here. <laughs> You get a lot of West Virginia accents, though, which are very nice, too. So the commandant, when Polly says she doesn't know these guys, the commandant calls the police, and the doctor and Jamie, uh, they cheese it, as uh, Bender <laughs> said on Futurama. Cheese well, no, doesn't it, he fuzz. Like is this where the doctor says, wait till I tell you, and then they run, and it's like, okay, now you've evaded the police twice, and now, now you've got two felonies on you. I hope it's worth it. <laughs> Well, yeah, the doctor likes to likes to live on the edge, I guess. <laughs> so back in that medical bay of the uh, of the very suspicious chameleon tours people, Blade, the head pilot, he says uh, that this alien is suffocating, and the nurse comes in and uh, she scolds him a little bit because uh, they came in twenty minutes late, probably because they've been running around after the doctor for the last episode. <laughs> So they link these two bodies together, this uh, alien, or, well, I'm saying alien here. We don't still entirely, even at the end of three, the first half. I mean, the doctor uh, said you know, The first three yeah. episodes. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming they're aliens. <laughs> and uh, this this face definitely, definitely looks alien of the, you know, the lay, they live kind of face <laughs> as, as it's presented in the animation. But the bodies are linked together, and we see... The alien face transform into the human's face, and they they didn't really do an elaborate morphing job in the animation. It's more sort of like a I guess you'd call it a fade or something, <laughs> where the the one just sort of yeah it fades in basically over the other one. Well, and speaking of the prisoner, you know, I'm wondering if they uh, borrowed this body change technology from there. <laughs> ah, could be, yeah. Yeah, there's probably, uh, given the time period we're looking at now, there's probably a lot of cross-pollination going on there. <laughs> uh, in the airport concourse, the doctor and Jamie are on benches, uh, and the police are out looking for him, and they're doing the old hide-behind-a-newspaper trick. Uh, Jamie's is upside down. Now, I, I read the script on... Uh, Chrissy's transcripts, and it mentions that it's actually a foreign language paper, but in the animation, it's 
the same one, same English paper that the doctor's reading, but it's upside down. Um, but then Jamie is from old Scotland, uh, and he may not even know how to read for all Well, I can almost guarantee, assuming in live action that it was upside down, um, that that was the actors. I mean, that was the kind of thing that Troughton and um, Fraser Hines, who played Jamie, would come up with, right? You know. Oh, you think this was their own little sort of They did that kind of stuff all the time. In fact, a lot, and this cool. is something that surprised me as I've watched more and more behind-the-scenes stuff is that a lot of times little things like that or, or when people do certain kind of spit takes or whatever, um, a lot of times the actors just do that. They don't tell anyone they're going to do it or they agree with no, each other yeah. that they're going to do it and then it's there. And, and especially in a TV show, you're just going to move on. You know, <laughs> you don't have time to redo <laughs> it. So, yeah. Yeah. Especially well, if they don't think little... the director will go with it. They just do it live. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, that's a cute little visual yeah. gag. And uh, the police walk by him, and uh, they don't notice that one of the papers is upside down. Doctor tells Jamie he doesn't believe that who they saw was actually Polly. You know, a dead ringer for her, but... Uh, Although he, he says it was, it was kind of Polly, right? right? He's not saying it wasn't Polly, but it... You know, yeah, there's some confusion there. <laughs> yeah. And actually, it's confusion in the show. I don't, I mean, maybe we'll learn, you know, at this point, we've watched the first three episodes. Maybe we'll learn what was going on in the last three, but it's not clear to me um, what's going on with her. Cause it, it doesn't seem like she was body replaced. It does seem like she's still that person, but that she's now has a different personality or something. Yeah, it could be, although we did just see that alien face yeah. metamorphose into a human face. So, it's, uh, you know, there's, we don't have a full explanation yet, but we can, uh, we can tell there's some kind of uh, duplicity going on here. <laughs> so it, a very convenient uh, bit of information drops into the doctor's lap at this point because the newspaper he's hiding behind, he just happens to have... It opened to the page where Chameleon Tours has taken out a big ad. And, and he knows it's Chameleon Tours because this was already mentioned uh, earlier when they were talking to Polly and she was denying knowing them. The ad says the, the tours are specifically for people 18 to 25. So uh, I think it's pretty much a safe bet that this is a porn recruiting uh, outfit. <laughs> The doctor explains to Jamie uh, what a chameleon is. I, I'm assuming they don't have them in Scotland, but uh, it's a color-changing lizard. <laughs> and it's also a term that's used metaphorically for for people who, who blend in or otherwise you know, deceive in some way. And uh, they reminded me, there was an old movie, I haven't seen it for literally decades, um, but Woody Allen made a movie called Zelig, which is about a human chameleon who any group that he associated with he'd just automatically blend <laughs> in if he was hanging around orthodox jews he'd suddenly have a big you know bushy beard and the ringlets hanging down and the you know the hat and all that stuff i think people younger than us don't remember that they think of forrest gump you know for this no yeah yeah yeah, and he, he he kind of, he didn't really change appearance or mannerisms. He just kind of ended up in a lot of mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> famous people situations and uh, tended to get along with them. But, uh, yeah, similar idea. 
So they're sitting there with their great big newspapers, uh, and uh, Ben walks by and sees them. Uh, they have a brief, quick reunion, and they all decide they'd better head for a private place to talk, and Ben, ben thinks he knows of one. Meanwhile, back in the Chameleon Medical Center, uh, the nurse wakes up the body snatcher, um, and they start sort of calibrating him. They give him eye tests and smell tests, you know, different things to sort of make sure that the procedure was successful. And then uh, one of the pilots asks some questions about his name and where he lives and stuff. And uh, it seems like this procedure may have transferred some knowledge as well as looks. Uh, so a bit of information that may or may not come in handy. In Although he doesn't speak very well. One thing I noticed is the little things they grabbed to control him that and this is probably an animation. They looked these days. It looked like a game controller. You know, like a I was thinking controller. it looked like. I mean, I, I've only really used one once, but it reminded me of the Wii controllers, right. Nintendo Wii. Yeah, uh, they're sort of these long, uh, long rectangular things. But yeah, but yeah, first, that's exactly what I thought. When he first starts talking, he, he's he, you can barely understand him, and then they make some adjustments on one of the controllers, and then he starts talking, you know, more understandably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So back in the concourse, the Chameleon Tours has a kiosk there, and uh, the doctor and Ben and Jamie spot Polly working behind the counter at a kiosk. And I, uh, this this triggered a fun little memory for me because my mom is uh, a blue-eyed blonde who worked at an airport kiosk in the late 1960s. <laughs> Except in her case, it was for a Mutual of Omaha, which. Uh, uh, being a, an insurance company is probably even less savory than Chameleon Tours. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, don't put in my own here. So my ex's mother had a job for a, a train company, and part of she would take, you know, ticket orders or whatever over the phone. And part of her job was to determine from their voice if they were black or not. Oh, geez. And therefore put them in the appropriate car, so to speak. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> wow. That is uh, that is some old-timey uh, yep. business there. <laughs> hmm. So, anyway, that was uh, just a little digression. I just thought it was funny that my mom and Polly had uh, such a particular <laughs> point of uh, overlap there. So the doctor goes up and uh, harasses Polly or, or Polly's stand-in. And he uses another one of these old uh, tricks. Uh, he gets her to reveal information that she couldn't know. You know, she denies knowing stuff. Then then she blurts something out that reveals she really does know something. And I put the dialogue from the, uh, from the script in here. She says, if I'd seen anyone shot, I'd have gone to the police. The doctor says, anyone shot? And she says, oh, I mean murdered. <laughs> the doctor says, I didn't say anyone was shot or murdered, Polly. <laughs> so you've seen that trick uh, mm -hmm. hundreds of times in movies and TV. But well, uh, and it's always a good one. Again, watching, uh, you know, too many interrogations and everything. This is a real trick they use in interrogations. You know, they will bring someone. Mm. They won't tell them why they're there. And there's, it goes either one of two ways. Like you say, maybe they'll say something like that that the cops never told them. Or mm -hmm. the other one is like this one guy who killed his entire family so that he could have money to pay this uh, Hungarian cam girl 
um, for more time that he was in love with. Hmm. They're like, at some point, they're like, you know, we've been talking to you here for two hours and you haven't asked us why we're talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, certainly circumstantial evidence of something, but uh, yeah. and I don't know if it itself would prove anything. Yeah, it's just, it is not many innocent people unexpected... are questioned for two hours by the cops without going, hey, why are we here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. So the doctor has figured out that uh, she she knows something about what went on at, uh, at Chameleon. And it turns out there's a room uh, behind the kiosk. You know, she just can basically, from working the counter, she can turn around and go through a door. And in this back room, there's a monitor in there that uh, is connected, I guess, to uh, uh, the Chameleon Tour's office. And Blade, uh, Blade calls her in, and he tells her, after, after the conversation she just had, uh, he basically tells her she's compromised and she's going to have to leave on the next flight. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get the impression he was too angry. He just seems kind of like, well, this is the way things go sometimes. And then in air traffic control, we see uh, the person we saw before in the medical bay, uh, probably this is the other camouflaged creature that looks like him now. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes in and it taps one of the controllers uh, on the shoulder, kind of tag team style, you know, and they, uh, the one gets up and uh, wanders off and they, this, this one who's just come in sits down and starts controlling air traffic. And it turns out the Commandant's office is at air traffic control um, so I don't know if he's specifically part of air traffic control or if he's like, uh, in charge of the whole airport. I, yeah, I'm I think not they had said early on he was in charge of the airport. So he's like the number one guy. So. Oh, okay. Well, he seems to be at least in the vicinity of air traffic control is where he, his, his base is. And the commandant introduces, uh, kind of an urbane Scottish man, uh, to his receptionist, Gene. So, I mean, the guy, he has a Scottish accent. It's mostly, it took me a while to even notice it. Mm -hmm. um, subtle. But yeah, he's, he's sort of a, a dapper dude. Not, you know, not too different from the commandant himself. So, by the um, way, this is a guy who's been in Dr. Eli a couple times before. His name is Bernard Kay. And the one we'd really recognize him as, he was the wheelchair-bound scientist in the Dalek invasion of Earth, the one who invented the... Uh, grenades oh. that didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember him. Uh, huh. For some reason, I remember that guy being huskier than the, than this guy. But that that could just be an effect of the animation, or it could yeah, be the fact that I saw it a long time. There'd ago There'd be no now. way to tell looking at the animation. So <laughs> it's just one of those. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, it's always amazing how these guys can play different roles. And oh yeah. So this man, uh, this Scottish man. He's Detective Inspector Crossland, and uh, he was supposed to meet Gascoigne here, the guy who got murdered real early on. But uh, but now that he's here, uh, Gascoigne is missing. And Gene asks, what shall I say your business is? And Crossland says, investigation into chameleon youth tours. <laughs> so someone someone's getting wise to chameleon. 
I don't think it's the best detective approach to come in announcing who you're who you're investigating. <laughs> kind of, you know, who knows? I mean, she may be working with them, right? So, yeah, yeah, could be. But now leave that business to the professionals. I guess. <laughs> well, he is from Scotland Yard, so <laughs> yeah. So next, we see a photo booth. Uh, just you know, your typical. It has a little curtain on it that you slide for privacy, and you can take pictures of yourself or however many people you can cram into the booth. In this case, we've got three people: the doctor, Ben, and Jamie. And this is a. Uh, this is the private secret place that Ben had mentioned spotting earlier, so they can have a have a private discussion here, aside from the uh, older, grandmotherly looking lady who pulls the curtain aside only to see that it's already <laughs> occupied. Well, I was going to say also, you know, when you have an older guy and two younger men inside <laughs> a photo booth, I'll just I'll leave it to you what some people might make of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might. Uh, she probably had all kinds of uh, suspicious thoughts wandering <laughs> away from that. So they make a plan. Ben will investigate the chameleon hangar. Right now, as far as anybody knows, they don't have any reason to recognize Ben or suspect him of anything. The doctor will try talking to the commandant again, and Jamie will return to the kiosk and keep an eye on Polly. So they're splitting up once again. At the kiosk, a dark-haired woman, Polly's still at the kiosk. She hasn't uh, gone off and taken the next flight yet. A dark-haired woman, this is uh, Samantha Briggs from Liverpool. She comes looking for her missing brother, uh, Brian. He went on one of these chameleon tours and has never been seen or heard from since. Mm -hmm. Samantha did get a postcard from Rome from him. Uh, and Polly's trying to give her the runaround, but Samantha's persistent. She says she contacted the police. They were no help. You know, they can't be bothered with every person who goes missing. So Polly says she'll make some inquiries. In the back room behind the kiosk, uh, Spencer, uh, he's, he's Blade's, uh, he's the second in command to Blade, it appears. He tells Polly that he's going to have Blade contact her soon. Blade is off doing something else right now. So, Polly goes back out and invites Samantha to wait, and Samantha sits down next to Jamie, who's sitting there to keep an eye <laughs> on Polly. Uh, and Jamie's hiding behind his newspaper again, so maybe Polly hasn't noticed him. But... I did notice this time that the uh, newspaper was the right way around. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he, he learned a few things since last time, I guess. So, he's talking to Samantha, and... Uh, he, uh, he tells her when he finds out her situation, uh, he says, I might just be able to help you. He wants her to meet a friend of his, of course, the doctor, uh, who, who um, Jamie is sure he'll know what's best. In the commandant's office, the doctor arrives. He's come to see the commandant, and the commandant wants none of it. He's very, uh, very curt. He won't even give the doctor a single minute. He says, not even one second. You know, he just... <laughs> Doesn't want to hear it. But Jean, uh, here's the doctor mentioned Chameleon, and she mentions that Inspector Crossland is investigating it. So there you go. That's why Crossland had to uh, tell her straight out what he was doing so that we would know for this scene. <laughs> so apparently this has inspired uh, the doctor some measure of hope that maybe the inspector uh, will be 
more inclined to listen to his talk of murder and ray guns and so forth, because at least Crossland knows there's something weird going on at Chameleon. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, the commandant is going to be calling the police again. So the doctor says, one step nearer and I'll blow you all to smithereens. And he holds up this round orb, which is very, um, what was the middle one? Return of the Jedi, the Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. and Jabba the Hutt's Palace, where, uh, you know, the bounty hunter who turns out to be Princess Leia shows up with the uh, thermal detonator, yeah, I think I, it's called. I and, that part. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's the same, uh, same gambit. And then he says, catch, and he throws it at the commandant. <laughs> And he's off like a rocket. <laughs> and the commandant uh, is sitting there and he's holding what it looked to me like a stress ball, although I'm not sure right. if they had those in the 1960s. Well, yeah, I'm also going to say, though, in terms of adding to his crime, so now, you know, they've committed felonies by running from the police multiple times and now he has threatened terrorism. <laughs> yeah. And in an airport of all places. Yeah. <laughs> And it's funny because yeah, we think of 9-11 and, you know, all the changes that that made. But one thing that people often forget is in the 70s and maybe in the 60s, but certainly in the 70s, there was this whole spate of hijacking planes, you know. People would hijack a plane to go to Cuba to get out of a court case or, you know, Palestinians or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there's all these different things, you know, the different resolutions to them. Sometimes they just went to a place and left or sometimes it got caught or sometimes, you know, whatever. But uh, sometimes everybody on the plane got killed. You know? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, there's there's this visual gag in Airplane, which I, I think Airplane was 1980, if I remember right. And, uh, you know, the airport security then was a lot lighter. You know, yeah. there's like a single stand-up metal detector. But the joke is, you know, a, a couple... Uh, uh, very Middle Eastern looking guys walk through and they're carrying machine guns and stuff and they, uh, they just get on, waved on through. Uh, and then some, I don't know if it was like a har- harmless old grandmother or something. She goes through the detector and it buzzes and, you know, they give her holy hell for it. Well, I'm also <laughs> reminded of a fish called Wanda because the bad guy in that, he has a gun. He wants to get in the airport and all he does is like he walks through the metal detector, but he just holds the gun outside of it and kind of tosses it and then picks it, you know, <laughs> grabs it when he gets to the other side. And I was like, you know, sometimes in films, this is like, uh, again, you know, who knows if I keep this in, but another, you know, another digression. It's like one of my favorite films is Memento. And in Memento, mm. this guy forgets everything every day and has to relearn it. And so one of the things he does is he takes Polaroid photos, right? And Mm -hmm. so on the one hand, we all have phones now, so, you know, you can take photos that way. But the the story just, like, it just doesn't match even not that long later where nobody has Polaroid photos or knows what they are or, you know, whatever. (laughs) um, Yeah. Yeah, I I only saw it once, and that was quite a long time ago. I, I enjoyed it. But it's a it's a it's a tricky movie to get through because if I remember right, isn't it told in it's like backwards. a reverse chronological yeah, it's order? It's told backwards. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not just like playing a film backwards. I think. I mean, it's more right. like you have scenes where the action proceeds in normal it, time, each but then scene it sort of comes b- before the last scene, right? So yeah. 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 Uh, one of the things I say about it is that it's the uh, only film in history to have a surprise beginning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I should watch that again sometime. I remember I liked it when I saw it. Well, and I'll definitely put it in one of my host choice. No, because I mean that that is one of my top. Literally, that's maybe my number one. Where if somebody hasn't seen it, I I no. Oh, very good. Well, definitely. uh, uh, There's just one thing I remember from it. Uh, He he would get these tattoos to remind himself of things, and there's one that says like a. You know, don't forget that he lies or something <laughs> yeah. like that. But it doesn't say who he is. <laughs> but, yep. yep, pretty neat movie as I remember it. Anyway, uh, back in the uh, Chameleon Tours office, uh, Blade uh, is talking to Polly through the monitor uh, thingy. And uh, she, uh, he tells Polly to get rid of Sam, Samantha, uh, who's looking for a brother. Uh, and then Polly is to close down the kiosk and take the next flight. At the kiosk, Polly tells Samantha, your brother definitely did get on our flight to Rome, but what he did when he got off the plane, I couldn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Then she closes down the kiosk, and uh, Samantha's upset that uh, you know, Polly was pretty much useless. In the Chameleon Tours hangar, which is connected to the office and the, the medical bay and all that stuff, the hangar's empty. Ben is lurking around in there and looking around in there. And uh, he opens up one of these big packing crates, and he finds Polly inside. And she's just standing there, frozen still, uh, you know, staring like a mannequin or something similar. So Ben uses one of the phones in the building, and uh, he calls air traffic control. Uh, He wants to speak to the doctor, and he knows that the commandant's office is at the air traffic control. So he's hoping they can put the doctor on the line. Back in the concourse, Jamie tries to introduce Samantha when the doctor shows up, and the doctor holds him off for a minute. He first wants to go back into the kiosk, in the room behind the kiosk, and check on the fake Polly. Uh, But in the back room, he sees that little video monitor, and uh, what he sees on it is Ben calling him, or trying to call him, at the air traffic control office. And then what the doctor sees is Spencer, the second-in-command bad guy pilot, who knocks out Ben with some kind of science fiction pen. You know, it's kind of like uh, his these guys' own version of the Daleks vapor-shooting gun. Yeah, I think it's the same thing that was done on Polly in the very first episode, or right in the beginning, mm-hmm. to knock her out, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little bigger than a usual writing pen, more like a pen light, I'd say. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's basically a pen. In the office of Chameleon Tours, uh, the two fake pilots, or I guess they probably are actually able to fly a plane, but uh, they're they're also something other than pilots. Uh, Blade and Spencer, they're watching the monitor. The doctor's yelling at the monitor, Ben, can you hear me? And so on, and he. He keeps yelling for a while, uh, apparently thinking if he just keeps yelling, maybe he'll, Ben will wake up or something. I don't know. But Blade and Spencer figure that the doctor's going to be coming here next, and so they uh, make a plan to dispose of Ben, and then they make a plan to dispose of the doctor. Back at immigration, uh, the inspector is talking to a thin guy, uh, Jenkins is his name, he vaguely re- remembers Sam- Samantha's brother, uh, Brian, and he says maybe he snuck through during all that chaos earlier in the morning, which was when the TARDIS arrived and the whole uh, 
wacky affair started. At the kiosk, Samantha and Jamie talk a little, and she seems to be taking a shine to him. And someone new replaces Polly at the kiosk and then reopens it. Now, in the chameleon tour's office, the doctor uh, is in there looking around, trying to find what happened to Ben. And he finds that magic pen on a desk. He searches the room, doesn't find much, but then he mumbles to himself, packing cases. And then we switch back to the concourse. Uh, and this uh, this new replacement for Polly at the kiosk, she's talking to a bunch of college student types, you know, uh, young youngsters between 18 and 25, presumably. She tells them that, uh, well, she she this is a bit of very important or, or at least probably informative exposition. Uh, she's telling them, I'm quite sure the first thing you want to do when you get to Switzerland is write home to your parents. But in case you don't have time, Chameleon Tours have some postcards of Zurich ready for you to write here. <laughs> when you've finished your postcards, give them back to me and we'll post them for you in Zurich. Mm -hmm. Now, that's something I don't think I'd do that. It would just seem like kind of a weird, dishonest <laughs> thing. You can't put any actual details about what you're doing or what you're seeing or anything. But then, given that these are youth of the late 1960s, they're probably a bunch of lazy hippies and beatniks. So I figure uh, it makes sense in the context there. And uh, Samantha goes up to one of them and asks if she can uh, see that card and post it for him. And uh, he apparently has no objection to that. Uh, and she shows it to Jamie. It's pretty good evidence that uh, the tour group is up to something no good. And uh, he's supposed to stay here and wait for the doctor's return, but she uh, she strong arms him and uh, you know sort of uh, sort of suggests that he's not very brave, you know, and otherwise just uses feminine wiles on yeah. him to uh, talk him into investigating with her. I'll mention more in the next episode, but she's definitely after him. <laughs> nah, you know. I get that impression. Yeah. <laughs> But just then, uh, as they're going to uh, set out and look around, uh, do some snooping of their own, uh, the inspector shows up, and he wants to talk to Jamie. Back in Chameleon Tours, the doctor pries open one of these packing crates, and he finds that air traffic controller we saw at the beginning of the episode getting a face transferred. And then we hear a voice over a PA system in the building, uh, it's somebody calling for help. He says he's suffocating. Please help me, somebody. And it turns out that when the doctor gets into the next room looking for the for this poor suffocating guy, it's a trap. And uh, some big panel slides shut, uh, blocking him off from his exit. And we see these vents in the wall. There's, there's two different ones, one up near the ceiling and one at about uh, sort of waist or chest height. When we see some gas begin seeping in, this isn't so much a poison gas as a chilly gas, and we see the doctor start start shivering. Uh, it looks like he's uh, becoming very uncomfortable very fast, and that's the cliffhanger for this episode. <laughs> episode three. So, a little tip for this episode. Ben and Polly were let go after episode two. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, you know, I, considering that this takes place in, in then current day England, <laughs> I was sort of wondering if this might be. Uh, well, but you know, the they time. didn't get an, I mean, this is, uh, so 
We don't know yet because you and I have not seen the last three episodes yet. But in episode six, there is some pre-filmed footage with them. So maybe they get some kind of exit. But my impression is they were just let go. Probably the writers had to to write them out of everything. Uh, and hmm. they may, we depending on what's in that pre-filmed footage, we'll see if they got treated even worse than Dodo. Because remember, uh. Dodo at least, that was when Polly and Ben first joined. And at least Polly came up to the doctor and said, well, Dodo says this, right? So there was sort of a, <laughs> you know, we'll see if they get that much, although it might be a kind of karma if they don't. Yeah. But, uh, so I didn't, you know, and honestly, until I read about that after having already watched it, I didn't really notice that they weren't in episode three. So they did a pretty good job of covering for that. But then there is a lot of going on a lot of characters in this story. Um, I mean, we had just, you know, like Ben was just, nowhere for five or 10 minutes in the first episode. (laughs) And the thing about the pre-film stuff is that they would tend to do. So whenever they shot outdoor, so when they shot indoors, they were shooting on videotape. When they shot outdoors for the first few years of Dr. Who, they had to use film. You couldn't use videotape outdoors for whatever reasons. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if it was lighting or what it was, but you had to. It might be too light sensitive. I've seen a lot of old videotape that, you know, it just gets all washed out when there's a bright light. So one of the weird things you have in the first few years of Doctor Who is that anything that's outdoors is a higher quality because it was on film. Anyway, but they also, since the filming was a whole different process and it meant that they were on a location somewhere, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to do it on weekends between the episodes or, you know, even in the previous story before this story, right? Just because they had to find a chunk of time to get everybody out to a location and film it. Right. So probably their their pre-filmed stuff in episode six was probably filmed, you know, before they were let go. So we, you know, again, it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see what it was, uh, uh, yeah. if they get any kind of send off or not. So in the recap, we see the doctor opening the crate and finding the air traffic controller and then the whole thing with hearing this, you know, weird whispering about him suffocating. Now, I think you've explained something I was confused about and I had my confusion in my notes here because and, – and I don't know if this is the fault of the direction and the animation or what, but I could not tell what was going on. I thought maybe the guy in the crate – because he doesn't seem to be totally dead. Like you say, he's kind of zombified. Maybe his brain waves were generating – you know, the sound through the speakers. I, I just, I had no idea what was going on. Um, really. But you mentioned that it was coming through the speakers, which caused the doctor to go into the room that had the trap in it. So I think you're right that, that there was supposed to be someone in that room that he was going to, but it didn't, I, that didn't occur to me at all. I was just thoroughly confused about yeah. who was saying this. Um, when I, when I initially watched it, I was a little bit ambiguous about it myself. Although, you know, when I watched it a second time, I was doing it sort of in split screen with the, uh, the reduced size video on one side, and then I had the Chrissy's transcripts script on the other side, and and that made it clear not not only from the descriptions of that scene where he gets trapped, but also in the preceding scene when the two evil pilots were discussing what was going on, and they said we got to get rid of. Um, this body, but also he's probably going to come and check this out. So yeah. we figured, or I, at this that point, I realized, ah, uh, yeah. So they knew he was coming, and they, yeah, laid right. all this out. Right. So uh, you know, he's pretty disabled from what's apparently this cold, you know, stuff. Uh, uh, but he manages to plug a handkerchief into one vent, and then get on like a chair or something, and 
put a handkerchief into the other vent of the tire up, and then he puts his coat over the camera. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. Can I interrupt yep. just briefly? I wanted to say that they uh, they did a pretty fair job of making it clear that this is some kind of freezing gas coming out because first he tried to block the vent with his hand, mm. and then he pulled away and like sort of nursed it with a you know a handkerchief and right. you know it was clear that that gas had had an immediate nasty effect on the hand, and then we. We got pretty good animation of him shivering, and uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he's starting to right. get real cold. And there's also a connection. We'll, we'll see. Presumably, this will carry through in later episodes because later in this episode, when he uses one of their weapons, it makes something very cold. So that seems to be uh-huh. their thing. Um, That's their I actually motif. thought originally when he touched the vents and stuff, I thought it was hot. But I, you know, again, I, I was just all confused at this point. So, uh, oh, yeah. but I, I think you know, yeah, it was absolutely that he was cold. And so then, um, so the Spencer then comes in to see what's going on, and the doctor is on the floor, passed out. And so he checks on the doctor's body, but guess what? The doctor wasn't passed out. (laughs) (laughs) And he uses actually the little tool I was just talking about with him later to spray Spencer and and, then get away. Yeah, hoist by his own petard. Yep. (laughs) I think I told you before, but if I didn't put it in this podcast, for a long time, I thought hoisted by his own petard was like a reference to. Like long johns and the straps, you know, like someone oh, picking someone like up by the suspender straps, right? Oh, yeah. It wasn't until <laughs> just in the last year or two that I was reading, oh, no, this is people who were planting bombs like to underneath the, um, <laughs> underneath a castle wall, uh, to, to breach the wall. And it would go off early, and they would be hoisted by their own petard. (laughs) I think petard was the actual explosive or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think I had been reading that phrase for years and years before I finally found out what it actually meant. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the doctor escapes, and then we see Samantha, the inspector, and Jamie. By the way, I'll just mention, and it's, you know, I think it's actually, it was relatively obvious to me watching this. They asked the actress playing Samantha if she would join the show now that Polly and uh, Ben were leaving, and she she turned was, them down. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's a bit of a spoiler. We can wait to the end, but she's being so chummy with Jamie and everything. Like, yeah, this makes sense, you know. <laughs> and she was smart, yeah. and, you know. Yeah. That that did occur to me pretty early on. I think uh, that that she might be a potential. Uh, and it's kind of amazing. You think? I mean, this doesn't happen so much these days. I think, but especially then, that they'd just be like. Well, like they do with Jamie, you know, by the end of the story, like, oh, do you want to join? And he didn't even know they were going to ask him until the end. Like, you know, these <laughs> days we have planned out these big, you know, multi-season arcs and, and all this stuff. And they're, they're just like, oh, we're going to drop these people. You want to join? You know, And it happened with Steven earlier, right, when he played the one role <laughs> uh, and then uh, came on as the other role at the end of the story. And uh, she, however, the actress did come back decades later um, as Queen Victoria in a uh, one of the modern oh. Doctor Who stories. So plays an important oh, role neat. there. Uh, so Samantha, the inspector, and Jamie are sitting on that bench outside the chameleon booth. Boy, that part of the set got a lot of use, you know, because it yeah. and it's probably pretty convenient because it's just a little corner, right? There's like a booth and a table, so it's an easy little set to, to have. Oh, uh, cool. No, I, I gotta I gotta ask a question here while it's fresh in my mind. You mentioned uh, Samantha's actress comes back to play Queen Victoria. Now you've said in the past that. Doctor Who, at this point, has pretty much given up historical epic type uh, thing. So, so I'm guessing that Queen Victoria is sort of like a bit player in a science fiction themed 
story or something. Well, she's like not that. a bit player. She's a major player. But yeah, the future historical ones, uh, I mean, they still go back in time. It's just that they they have some, you know, there's a monster, there's a, you know, um, a time breach, there's a, you know, whatever, right? I mean, there's something going right, on that's, right. that's science fiction-y. They don't just do pure historicals going forward, yeah. Right, okay. All right, sorry to interrupt. Oh, no problem. curious about that. Uh, let's see. So Samantha is worried about her brother, but the inspector says if Jamie's info is correct, he has other things to worry about first because his colleague was murdered. And I'm like, well, wait, if your colleague was murdered, <laughs> that's kind of done, but her brother might still be alive. So that would seem to be more important, but that's just my, you know, prioritizing. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the doctor shows up, the inspector shows him a photo of his colleague, and the doctor confirms that it's a body they found way back in the beginning. And uh, then the guy, uh, Sp- I guess his name is Spencer. I never picked up on his name, so I refer to him in different ways in my notes. But anyway, Spencer wakes up. He's who the doctor spread. And Captain Blade comes in and asks where the doctor's body is because he's expecting him to be dead. But bad news for them. <laughs> and Spencer, it's kind of funny. He's mentioned this a couple times. He says, his intelligence is far above normal beings. And I always love how, like, especially aliens, and so as soon as they see the doctor, they're like, oh, he's the really smart one. We want him. And a lot of times he hasn't really done anything, you know, or he's kind of wacky <laughs> or forgetful or whatever. And I'm not sure you'd be like, oh, that's the guy we need, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, then we just recently had that, oh, the, the crazy doctor who wanted to blow up the world down in right, Atlantis. Right, right, right. Uh, he, just, he just sort of uh, took a shine to the doctor. Uh, right away, pretty yeah. much, even though the doctor had started off their acquaintanceship by lying to him, <laughs> yeah. basically. Yeah, well, there's just something about the doctor. Everyone seems to. <laughs> so the inspector wants to bring the doctor to the commandant so the doctor can tell him his story, and the doctor points out he already told the commandant his story, and the commandant wasn't very impressed, but the inspector assures him it'll be different now with the inspector's support. So the inspector and the doctor leave, and the doctor tells Jamie to keep an eye on the kiosk. Inspector and the doctor Because then Samantha uh, tells you she's going to go to the brother. He just, but I thought you just said this stuff in yours. Did this well, story they were, No, they, they were going to, but then the inspector oh, okay. came so, in and interrupted <laughs> okay, them. So, he wanted to talk to Jamie. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say I'm absolutely sure this could be a four-episode story, and this is one of those things where, I mean, there is a lot of plot, but here where they're basically redoing the same scene twice, so something tells me they yeah. were just, you know. Okay, so so basically, we repeat the earlier scene where Samantha now tells Jamie she's going to check out the hangar for her brother. Jamie doesn't want her to go alone. And, and again, you know, she's not very subtle here. She's like, it would be better if I had a man with me. <laughs> like, you know, get a room already. I've seen these discussions online of, of, you know, clueless guys, which I would include myself, where they're like, oh, yeah, you know, my best friend in high school, and we'd, we'd like, drive out to the, you know, kissing point or whatever, and she'd say, boy, this is a great place to make out. And he'd be like, yeah, I guess she wants me to help her find someone to make out with her. (laughs) 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 So it's sort of like that with Jamie. He doesn't seem to to pick up on (laughs) on things here. Yeah, I can identify with that. (laughs) (laughs) And then Jamie still wants to stay, and Samantha points out, okay, I'll just get murdered or something. (laughs) uh, And so he finally agrees to go there. And I'm just going to say from some experience, was someone that manipulative, you know, get a prenup. (laughs) Or, or, you know, stay with the friends with benefits. Don't... uh, (laughs) 
so the commandant has finally accepted that the doctor found a body, but he still wants to know where the doctor is from and why he doesn't have a passport. And the doctor says, you know, he found a man in a crate in a stupefied state, a coma. And he believes it was one of the commandant's employees. And then he kind of bizarrely says, and I think he might be in the flight control room over here. So he then walks into the room and he kind of stares at the flight controller, you know, the guy who replaced him. He doesn't say anything about this, but he comes back and then he shows him his funky pen and says that Inspector Gascoigne was murdered with a ray gun. And the chameleon tours is a cover for the mass kidnapping of young people. And he points out the missing people, including my two friends. And I realized at this point, this is kind of setting up like, oh, yeah, his two friends are gone now. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, the last time we saw Ben, um, it seemed to be suggested that he was actually uh, dead or else they were going to do him in. Right. Because and, they were going to dispose of him, they said. Right. And last time we saw Polly, she was zombified. So you could... Assume both of them are dead. Like I say, we know we at least see them, so we'll see what happens. It would be pretty uh -huh. gruesome if that's how they went out. But Oh, yeah. The doctor then says they're dealing with people not from this planet, and then that just exasperates the commandant. Like, he was starting to kind of trust the doctor, and then he throws out this, you know, aliens thing, and I understand. <laughs> you know, it's like, let me say, it's always funny in these shows, like, this was true in um, uh, Quatermass, right? It's like, uh, you know, the our main character who we like just throws out the most bizarre thing of, oh, of course, it's aliens from Mars. And, you know, and the stick up his ass military guy is like, no, that doesn't make any sense. And it's like, okay, as we're watching this, we know that the, the crazy guy is right and the other guy isn't. But if you step back in the real <laughs> world, you know, <laughs> would you pay attention if someone came up to you talking about these guys from Mars, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think presentation would have a lot to do with it in my case, you know. I mean, if a guy was just obviously uh, babbling, you know, that might be one thing. But if a reasonable person, like, like if you told me tomorrow, uh, you won't believe what I saw uh, at the local bar last night or something, <laughs> and you told me some wacky thing about aliens and ray guns and stuff, uh, well, first I'd think, uh, you're just shitting me, you know, but, uh, then, you know, if, uh, if you really seem serious about it at some point, I would say, okay, yeah, you really, you're, you know, you're really serious about this. And, you know, then at some point I'd at least entertain the idea, I would hope. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Now I know if I want to run a long con on you. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, don't get cocky. <laughs> so Samantha is in the hangar, I guess, with Jamie, and she finds signed postcards from Germany. So they don't even say Germany front. That was kind of clever. It's like one says, "Oh, I've just arrived at the Black Forest," right, which is a place in Germany. Mm. And she runs to Jamie and shows them these, and they head off to the commandant's office. And they burst into the office, and the doctor immediately recognizes the importance of the cards. And Samantha explains to the inspector and the commandant that the cards are signed by the young people before they depart. Then they're sent by a chameleon from the appropriate location to make it seem like they arrived. And like I said, you know, a credit to the writers that they've been seeding this whole postcard thing through the whole thing. And, you know, how importantly the doctor mm -hmm. took the stamp, uh, you know, that hadn't been used, you know, from Sweden or whatever. Yeah, the Spanish or, one, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
And uh, the commandant asks why anyone would abduct young people. And the doctor says, if we knew that, we wouldn't be sitting here. Now, these are lines that wouldn't uh, happen uh, today. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, one can think of uh, too many unfortunate <laughs> reasons why somebody might do that. Uh, so the commandant pulls the inspector aside and asks if the doctor is unbalanced. <laughs> and, but the inspector, and it's, you know, he's just, from the very beginning, he has sort of trusted the doctor more than he had any reason to. So he keeps sort of keeping the commandant from, you know, taking the doctor offline or whatever. And so the inspector remains supportive and he does, he does commit to his people keeping an eye on the doctor. And the inspector says he'll personally investigate Chameleon and report back. And the commandant then gives the doctor 12 hours to freely roam the airport, after which it's all over. And this again, not exactly Die Hard 2, but it's sort of <laughs> the equivalent of the commandant in Die Hard 2 is um, you know, a guy who played a, a police and everything in Hill Street Blues and uh, New York or NY Blue and all that PD Blue. Um, you know, I never watched either Hill Street Blues or NYPD Blue, actually. And it's I, one of these days I might try because one of those I think was was made uh, or at least written or some there the guy who made Deadwood David Milch he had some involvement in one of those. Oh, he shows. was involved in a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna send you a picture. And you'll it's Dennis Franz is his name, and he's been. In, oh yeah, he's sort of a round face yeah, guy with a little yeah. mustache, was, and okay, he's literally yeah. a cop in like twenty or thirty different shows. I mean, he just for some reason exuded, you know worn out cop (laughs) 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 so anyway uh why was i saying oh he he, in um in die hard 2 he's the head of the airport (laughs) oh okay and uh and bruce willis are you know going at each other the whole time and and all that so it's kind of similar (laughs) to the commandant oh very good (laughs) now uh a question for you did we mention uh the part about uh, freezing the cup and shattering it. I don't remember us actually saying it. I see the notes here. I could swear I have. Oh, you know what? I just somehow I oh, I just overlooked it. Um, I think we just got into talking about the other, you know, the doctor's right, crazy right. stories and stuff. Uh, I, I thought we should mention it though because. Um, aside from another demonstration of freezing technology, it was something that when I saw it, uh, I wasn't clear on what had happened exactly. The animation yeah, I didn't agree. make okay, it Okay, let me, let me see if I can say this so that I can just like insert it back in there somewhere. I have no idea. Yeah, this take your a, time. This will be an editing challenge anyway, because I'll digress. Oh, videos. sure. Right, uh, so the Commandant, you know, is exasperated with the doctor for the whole alien thing. The doctor says, but my pen is evidence and I'm going to demonstrate it. And he then goes in the other room and gets the flight controller guy to come in and hold a cup of coffee. And he then sprays the cup and the flight controller drops it and it shatters. And it turns out that the pieces are frozen. Yeah. And the animation makes it clear that the cup shattered. But I mean, that's what you expect to happen when you uh, drop a cup. Uh, But um, somebody says something right then in the show and I must have rewound it, or whatever the streaming video equivalent <laughs> is, uh, probably four times, uh, trying to make out what they said, and uh, I never, I never could. So I wasn't a hundred percent. Well, I think clear. the woman, yeah. um, I forget her name, the administrative assistant woman, she says that it that it shattered from being frozen or something. She says something along those uh, lines. So yeah. She, um, but 
there's multiple weird things here. It's a little hard from the animation to tell what's going on. And that's in part because this is more or less three 2D animation and they're trying to create a 3D situation where he's freezing the cup and the cup is falling and it's a little hard to understand what's going on. The other thing that's hard yeah. to understand is why he got the air, air traffic controller. I mean, he's suspicious that he's a clone or whatever, but he doesn't do anything to him or did he want him to see that he had the pen? I mean, it, it does come up again and and this guy mentions it to his colleagues, but I just, uh, it's sort of unclear. It's, it's just, and I, and I do think this is a case where the animation is confusing um, because they weren't able to fully portray it. But even with the, even without that issue, why he brought the guy in, because it's not like you, what you would expect is that he would do something to freeze the guy's hand or something temporarily. Uh, no, yeah. And, and then prove that he's an alien or something. But that doesn't happen, right? He just freezes right. the coffee cup and nothing happens <laughs> with the guy, right? So, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so... Uh, the commandant gets the doctor is 12 hours to roam freely. And then Samantha non-consensually hugs Jamie. I mean, at least in the animation, she just, you know, I mean, it, it could be assault if uh, he <laughs> to go for it. Um, In the chameleon control room, the flight controller tells Spencer that the doctor suspects him and turned one of their own weapons on him. So this is, so they do mention what just happened, but the doctor didn't, turn the weapon on him. He did it on the coffee cup. And again, it's just not quite clear what maybe did he want them to know that he's onto them? Is it, you know? Um, yeah. And they realize that the doctor may figure them out, but no one will believe him as truth is beyond their intelligence. <laughs> yeah. These aliens or whatever these guys are, uh, the, the enemies in doctor who tend to be very overconfident. <laughs> <laughs> And the air traffic controller is now given a medallion to attach to the doctor, after which a device will be activated to kill him. And this gives these flashbacks to some, mm -hmm. as a kid, some cheesy show, and I don't remember what it was, but where this guy, like, had to, his brother had to go. His brother was one of those, you know, drunk and screwing things up or whatever. And, and there was something where lightning would come out of the sky. And so he had one of these little medallion things, and that's what would get the lightning to hit somebody. And what he ah. did was, while he was talking to his brother, he adjusted his tie. Um, and so then he stuck the medallion on the backside of the tie, which was very clever. Ah. Because when the lightning is coming after him, his brother realizes he's got something on him, but he doesn't wear it. So he's stripping off all his clothes, but he doesn't take ah. off his tie. So. Ah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's fine. <laughs> little reference I couldn't avoid there because it's basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah. In the air traffic control room, a chameleon flight is coming in, and the doctor and company are monitoring it. And then the doctor asks, well, how many you know, flights do they have a day? And it turns out they have eight, but they only have four planes. And he finds that suspicious, which, you know, kind of like a Schindler's List, right, where the uh, trains with people go out and come back way too early uh, to mm. actually be going where they're going, right? And um, the doctor finds this was this suspicious, but the administrative assistant does not. She says, ah, oh, they're just short all flights, you know. Um, it's funny because she mentions all these destinations like Rome and, and Paris and all this. And of course, to us, that's all very exotic, but traveling to those places is, is like going to work for us, right? I mean, the, they're very close together compared to if you're in the U.S. and used to <laughs> the distances here. <laughs> the doctor then asks about the radar's range. And it's 130 miles, but they don't really notice a plane until it calls in, and they don't pay attention to a plane once it takes off. And 
So the doctor realizes that means they might be anywhere. <laughs> and I, I want to mention about the radar's range. This actually made me go do an internet search uh, because I remembered there was a movie that had a joke about a, a radar range because one of the early microwave ovens was the Amana radar range. <laughs> now, I thought it was in Spaceballs, but that's actually a joke about jamming the radar. But but in Airplane, uh, there was a joke about uh, the radar range where uh, one of the guys uh, says, what's, what's, what's in the radar range or, or something like that? And uh, uh, the other guy looks at the microwave and he says, about two more minutes. <laughs> anyway, and sorry. As the doctor is <laughs> leaving, the bad guy flight controller pats him on the back and leaves the medallion on his back. It must be just the right color of his coat for no one else to notice. But uh, <laughs> yeah. In the animation, it's very obvious. It's like putting a big brass button on the back of a black <laughs> yeah. jacket. Then the inspector goes to the chameleon kiosk, which is being staffed by Spencer. And the inspector wants to talk to the manager, but he's told that Captain Blade just arrived on one flight. He's about to take off on another. He really doesn't have time. But the inspector insists. So Spencer goes into the back room, and he talks to Captain Blade over the monitor. And Blade says to send him to the plane. We'll deal with him. Meanwhile, Jamie and the doctor are examining the room where the doctor was gassed. But the gas nozzles have disappeared. And the doctor's sure there's a hidden door, and they just start pulling things off of shelves. Uh, the inspector is on board the chameleon plane, and he's talking to uh, Captain Blade, and he starts asking about the missing boy and his murdered colleague. And he wants to hold the plane and keep it from taking off, but Blade excuses himself to make arrangements. And eventually, the inspector goes into the cockpit, where he gets held up by Blade with the same ray gun that killed Gascoigne. And the flight attendant secures the inspector, and Blade says the inspector is a particularly fine specimen. And uh, I didn't write it down. The flight attendant says, like, f especially for the something. Yeah, the director, yeah. I think they said, like, uh, that might be one of their head head guys, you know. Yeah. They're going to give him this choice, uh, distinguished-looking body. Yeah, I guess that <laughs> makes sense. So they're about to take off. And meanwhile, the doctor finally finds the secret door. <laughs> what was it you noticed about that? The trigger to the secret door is you got to turn a can that's sitting on one of like four shelves. Um, and in this, it was just a very minor visual gag, but the doctor has cleared every other can on all these shelves off except for that last one. And finally, he uses <laughs> that to trigger it. <laughs> yeah. This struck me funny. And they walk in. Now, there's something important. And again, I think the animation, I think that maybe they didn't know what they were supposed to show. I don't know. But there's like a cabinet open. And Jamie points it out. And the doctor says, that's for someone not used to Earth's atmosphere. Mm, I think that's the thing that the hand flopped out of in the yeah. first episode. So it's, there's not, it's not clear what about the box or the container indicates that. I mean... Or if they had shown a spacesuit or something, but all we see is a wooden box or, you know, yeah, yeah I don't know. Um, <laughs> and again, it's possible they just didn't know what they were supposed to be showing. Yeah, that seems pretty likely. They then turn on the monitor and it's showing some kind of hospital room. And on another monitor, <laughs> Spencer is watching them looking at the monitor. So <laughs> and he activates the device and the medallion starts doing something to the doctor's back. Oh my gosh. I mean, this could have, 
you would think this would be the you know the end of the episode right but no jamie just pulls the medallion off and they stomp on it <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh, an awful lot yeah. of, you know build up <laughs> yeah you know it's it's funny um because this thing it looks almost like uh there's a thing that's used with old like civil war must uh, muskets uh it's I don't remember the term for it. It's like a firing cap or something, but it's it's what the gun's hammer connects with, and it's full full of little gunpowder or something that then it blows up when it's hit, so that ignites the powder in the musket and so forth. But this is like a large version of that. It looks almost like a straw boater hat that's button sized, you know. And and that's what I was expected was that it was something explosive, which uh, you know would at least put a big divot in the doctor's back, but, right? This seems more like it's a, you know, a heat ray or something like that, or maybe a freeze ray, given the nature of these guys, where, you know, he has time to react. And uh, uh, Jamie pulls it off, but he could equally have just uh, taken his coat off or, you know, whatever. Yeah, so that's a little weird. Uh, (laughs) Meanwhile, the chameleon plane is in flight. In the cockpit, they watch the passengers on a monitor. We have a lot of monitors in this. And Blade tells the inspector he wanted to know what the secret to Chameleon Tours was. And he pulls a lever and all the passengers disappear. End of episode. Yeah. Actually, also kind of reminds yeah. me of that recent, was it Malaysian plane a few years ago that uh, disappeared? <laughs> mm, oh, yeah, yeah. You remember when we were kids, all of the, uh, uh, the triangle one, um, the Bermuda Triangle, remember that was the huge deal when we were kids? Like a, oh, sure, a yeah. plane that flew into this region <laughs> would disappear. What was it? I'm tempted to say it was uh, probably a Stephen King story. Maybe it was the Langoliers where everybody who was awake on the plane when it passed through some dimensional portal or whatever, everybody who was awake basically vanished except for any artificial things like hip hip joints or, uh, <laughs> you know, fillings and mm. teeth and stuff but this is like that. Everybody just has vanished instantly from the, from the plane. Or maybe it's just the rapture. Yeah, I was I don't just know for sure. That. It is very like that, and then planes are supposed to fall out of the air. And all that. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so well, now uh, we will probably present this as one episode. But at this point, for us, we don't know what's going to happen next. So <laughs> yeah, I uh, I will say that so far, I think they've got a good thing going in my book. Uh, but uh, there's still three more full episodes where they can really cock it up. So yeah, there is a lot of plot, see. and even though I said they could cut it down, it might be too confusing if they did. So we'll have to see what uh, what they do with this part. Um, but they definitely. Like I said, it's a little weird, especially as also you know for the kids show thing, to have these things that are completely unexplained for what would you'd be watching this show for a month, uh, to <laughs> not knowing what was going on with all this stuff, right? Um, yeah. yeah, and I I haven't been watching for it. I know that in a lot of shows in the past they've been good about recapping all the information you really need to know and. Uh, Maybe they've been doing that in this, but if so, it hasn't been yeah, terribly no, intrusive. Really. <laughs> if you weren't watching the previous ones, you're really not going to have too much idea what's going on. And we'll see what happens with Ben and Polly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, uh, I guess we just have to uh, get ready to 
miss them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have grown somewhat fond of them. Neither of them is a particular favorite, but uh, well, they're, uh, they're not bad. They I do like have personalities. And... I, I like Polly when, they, when the writer understands what to do with her. Yeah, the screaming Polly is a little less impressive, but when she really uh, leaps into action, uh, she can be a lot of fun. And, you know, Ben has had a personality, in particular, he's sort of anti-authoritarian and skeptical of politicians and stuff. So uh, I appreciate that, right? And that also made it kind of ironic yeah. when he was the one in the last story uh, who, who fell under the spell of the of the, uh, right. the crabs. <laughs> he trusted the crabs. Yep, never do that. <laughs> one week later. So episode number four, and after recapping the passengers disappearing on the plane, we see the doctor on the floor with Jamie over him, and the doctor is clearly very injured. And this actually was a little confusing to me, and I had to go back and check things out, because as you recall, there was this medallion that uh, had been put on the doctor's back, and then yeah, a little blasting cap thing. Yeah, and then they activated it, and Jamie like knocked it off, and they stepped on it. So my impression coming out of that was, oh, nothing really happened, right? But now it turns out, oh, it actually did harm the doctor. Like he sort of knocked out on the floor, even though we didn't see that previously. Um, and Spencer is holding a gun on Jamie, and he says the doctor is dead. And then he counts down from five to get Jamie's cooperation. Meanwhile, Samantha comes in and kicks a trash can, and that distracts Spencer. But it doesn't do much good as, as they're attacking him. He uses one of those pencil spray gun thingies to, to put both of them out. Yeah, a little pen light looking thing. Yeah. So then we see the doctor, Sam, and Jamie laid out on the floor, and, and Spencer sets up a complicated laser situation. <laughs> it's right out of James Bond, which I'm going to come back to. And the idea is it's going to slice them all up very eventually, right? It, it moves about a centimeter at a time going across yeah. the world. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to remember. I didn't look it up, but I was trying to remember what year uh, Goldfinger came out. Right. I know that very various thing is used in that the, the one james bond movie i think i've seen is that the only one you've seen no, well we said it before yeah. oh my god we'll have to watch the james bond film sometimes but i believe that is the classic one at least where i think he says oh do you expect me to talk and goldfinger says no i expect you to die <laughs> so that was pretty fun but yeah that, that's the james bond problem that they have here which is you know he puts up this complicated situation that over a long period of time might kill them and then leaves the room. Right? <laughs> and, so, and it makes no sense. He has a freaking ray gun. He could just shoot them all. Right. <laughs> just, you know, again, the, the worth watching, you know, advice to criminals, just shoot them. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I think we may have talked about this before, but, uh, Oh, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago on the internet, there was this, uh, evil overlord list uh, that somebody had put together where, you know, these are the mistakes I'm not going to make if I become an evil overlord. And, you know, I think monologuing uh, figured prominently in that. <laughs> yeah, that's also famous from uh, The Incredibles, right, where he's like, there's monologuing and there's having the cape and, you know, there's stuff that they talk about. <laughs> So Spencer leaves, you know, thinking that maybe sometime in the next 15 minutes they'll get sliced apart by this laser. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the cockpit of the plane, the inspector 
asks Blade where the plane is going, and Blade says, you will know soon enough. And then Blade calls the base, you know, whatever their base is, to tell the director that he has an original for him. Meanwhile, the laser approaches our heroes, and they're mostly paralyzed from that little pin gun. But the doctor has the idea of Sam giving her pocket mirror to Jamie, and he uses it to redirect the laser at the laser machine itself, blowing it up. So everyone is saved. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they can, uh, they're paralyzed, but they can still kind of move their uh, the arms and hands a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, that's good enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor points out that this attempt to murder them means the aliens' plans are almost complete. And he insists they need to head to the airport's first aid post. So he sends Sam off to the chameleon kiosk to keep an eye on things. Meanwhile, the airport doctor, and, and she shows up a lot, so I'm going to keep her, I don't even remember her name, so I'll refer to it's her. Nurse Pinto. Is okay, it? Pinto, I mean, I'll use that, because you have the airport doctor and the doctor, and it gets a little confusing. Anyway, Nurse Pinto is overseeing the takeover of a body. Meanwhile, the doctor and Jamie come into the hallway outside the room. Jamie's pretending to be very sick. So Nurse Printo comes out. The doctor wants to take Jamie into her x-ray room, but she won't let him. Meanwhile, in the commandant's command room for the airport, his assistant is calling around to different airports, kind of on her own initiative. And the doctor comes in, and the assistant tells him that Samantha Briggs wants to talk to him. She's at the chameleon kiosk. So the doctor sends Jamie to take care of Samantha. Meanwhile, the assistant tells the commandant and the doctor that she's called all the relevant airports. <laughs> it's a really funny thing here. The commandant, you know, the head of a whole huge airport, objects to the expense of these calls. <laughs> That's the key point. Okay, kids, there used to be a thing called long-distance calls. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember uh, from my youth, that was a big thing, you know. Don't make any long-distance calls without checking with mom and dad. I don't got, you know, back in the day, families used to, like, dress up when they did a long-distance call, you know, that kind of stuff. It was a huge deal and a huge expense, you know. And the assistant says, all the airports she called say that passengers on chameleon flights never arrive anywhere. (laughs) And the doctor tells the assistant that the medical center is connected to all this and he needs to get in and he needs her to help him by getting rid of the nurse for him. And again... I mean, I'm sure she has a name. Uh, it wasn't prominent enough to listen, but the assistant actually is really helpful in all this. Jean, so, I think. Yeah, the well, that's true. Yeah, she's Jean. Um, and actually, women get pretty good roles uh, in this story uh, overall. And Sam is definitely good. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, at the kiosk, Sam has purchased a chameleon tourist ticket to go to Rome. She wants to see what's going on. Jamie isn't happy about this. He wants to go with her, but he doesn't have the money. Uh, so he kisses her goodbye and steals her ticket in the meantime. And the commandant has arranged for an RAF fighter to follow the chameleon flight to Rome. And uh, on you know the doctor's instigation, the assistant suddenly falls ill and needs to immediately go to the medical center. And while the nurse is called out to deal with her, the doctor sneaks into her room it's kind of a funny bit here. He's fiddling with some buttons, and he doesn't notice that one of the buttons he pushes causes a panel behind him to open up and reveal the actual body of the nurse. 
you know, the sort of zombie version. Mm. The, as we now know, the fake nurse is examining the assistant when our doctor gives the assistant a thumbs up and she suddenly feels better. And the doctor talks to her and the commandant says he's found a whole bunch of game controllers, you know, <laughs> things like <laughs> We motes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, to prove his point, the doctor goes into the air traffic control room to get the guy who he knows is a fake air traffic controller, but turns out that guy's not on his shift yet, so the doctor will have to wait. Back at the chameleon kiosk, Sam can't get on the flight because she doesn't have her ticket. Uh, she registered as S Briggs, so Jamie was able to get in her place. She's told that, the you know, she complains, and she's told the manager will see her in the back. <laughs> it turns out Spencer is the manager, and he pulls a ray gun on her. Yeah, when uh, when Chameleon Tours invites you into a back room, uh, you probably yeah. don't want to go. <laughs> back in air traffic control, they're waiting for the Chameleon flight to take off, and the RAF plane will be following it. But um, the doctor asks how high it can go. It can only go 10 miles. And the doctor says, how futile. Now, I was like, wow, mm. I mean, I don't know how high the atmosphere goes but 10 miles seemed really high to me i wasn't sure so i asked chat gpt about the height of the atmosphere and it said that the earth's atmosphere is divided into several layers and the troposphere goes up to about eight miles and the stratosphere goes up to about 31 miles and actually the atmosphere goes way beyond that so 10 miles is totally reasonable as it turns out <laughs> so, oh, for a plane yeah but yeah. The doctor knows that this plane that the aliens are flying is not your ordinary plane. Yeah. So on the plane, everyone has served food, but Jamie is ill because he's not used to flying, being from, you know, 1800 Scotland. So he heads to the toilet and doesn't eat anything, which turns out to be important. Although I will say, in retrospect, I mean, planes don't serve food like while you're taking off or you know right after you take <laughs> off at least not normally but i guess uh chameleons little yeah little. yeah this is a special flight <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so well jamie is in the toilet in the cockpit they do the thing that they do to make passengers disappear but now we see that so previously all we saw is the passengers disappeared now we see that actually they're shrinking they're like going down to doll size <laughs> Uh, they do have two of the re episodes remaining. I should go back and watch them. I'm, I'm sort of curious how they did some of these effects, uh, you know, but. Um, well, yeah, that would be interesting. So meanwhile, they, people on the plane see that the Aria fighter is following them. So Captain Blade activates some kind of ray that causes the Aria fighter to, you know, we see light hit him and then he goes still on the radar. And when you. And as we get a lecture from the commandant, when, when something is still on the radar, that means they're falling. So he's crashing. But the chameleon flight also goes still. So the commandant says that means it's crashing too. But the doctor points out it could also be going up. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the commandant is dismissive, saying that means it would be in space, which the doctor agrees with. After everyone on the plane is shrunk, the flight attendant realizes that Jamie is missing from his seat because he went to the toilet. We see the plane going into space, and there's this huge spaceship there, and the plane goes into a docking thing underneath it. Um, 
And I'm really, so it looks fine and, and good in the animation. I'm really curious what the actual <laughs> model yeah. shots looked like. No, actually, when I saw the effect at first, I, uh, I was a little skeptical because I was thinking of the plane as traveling at passenger jet speeds, and it just kind of drifts up into this hole, you know, and uh, it's, it's sort of like, Going into a toilet bowl, but going up instead of mm. uh, down, like if the bowl was above you, you know. And uh, but it just kind of floats gently into it, uh, which is not how planes normally land. So, uh, <laughs> but then I realized it's a probably a tractor beam type mm. thing. And then if you watch it again with that in mind, it looks a lot more reasonable mm. if you accept the accept the science fiction aspect of it. <laughs> And that's the end of the episode. And we're on to episode five, and this one begins with a recap of all the stuff we just talked about, and the plane floats into the docking bay and all that. We have Anne, who is, she's the brunette kiosk clerk who replaced Polly at the kiosk. She's talking to Captain Blade, and the captain's bragging about how smart they are compared to the humans, <laughs> uh, I think he even mentions that the director said uh, uh, that humans are roughly as intelligent as the animals on their planet <laughs> or something like that. So he's not uh, not impressed with the humans. Jamie is lurking on the plane, apparently recovered from his little bout of nausea. Uh, he sees two of the undisguised aliens, the guys who look like they came from They Live. Um, he waits for them to pass by, and then he sneaks off the plane. He finds a room full of cabinets on the satellite, and uh, he opens a drawer, and he finds tiny humans, like a <laughs> bunch of little dolls in there. While Anne catches him snooping, and two of these they-live aliens uh, capture him. Uh, down on Earth at air traffic control, the commandant gets a call. He he says to everybody, or everybody present, that the uh, the wreckage of the RAF plane has been found, and the pilot was electrocuted. <laughs> so that's unfortunate. Then the imitation air traffic controller, I think his name is Meadows, uh, mm -hmm. he comes in, and the doctor, uh, together with the commandant, the doctor questions him. Uh, the commandant's getting a little more willing to cooperate. He's still a little... Reluctant, but uh, he's easier to persuade now than he was a couple episodes ago. And uh, under the air traffic controller's sleeve, uh, he's got one of those Wiimotes strapped to his arm. Uh, the doctor reaches out to fiddle with it, uh, knowing that this guy's going to get nervous, or suspecting that he's going to. And sure enough, he does get nervous. Uh, so nervous, in fact, that he'd rather spill the beans about the whole operation than let the doctor fiddle with it. Yeah, it's kind of surprising how much he's willing to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although once we find out what exactly uh, these things, these little remote controls can do, uh, it's more understandable. But yeah. still, uh, yeah, he's really uh, uh, really quick to blab. <laughs> so he tells the doctor about the existence of this satellite above the planet uh, that nobody spotted before. Uh his uh, his race is doomed, as we might have figured by now. Uh, they're planning to kidnap 50,000 humans, all between the ages of 18 and 25, uh, and shrink them. He gives the doctor all this information. 
And he also reveals that he's nervous. Uh, yeah, he doesn't reveal this straight away, only after a little more prompting. He's nervous because if these remotes are removed from the originals, you know, the actual humans, and all these humans are still somewhere at Gatwick, all the, all the ones that affect the people who were stationed at Gatwick, you know, infiltrating the joint. If these things are removed, something terrible will go will happen to the alien copies. He doesn't go into any detail, but uh, uh, the word terrible is used. Mm. And the controller also says uh, that these uh, these copies can be reverted to their alien form, their original form, but to do that requires the machine in the med lab. You can't do it from just anywhere. So the doctor says he thinks he'll head down to the med lab in that lab, uh, Sam is held captive. Samantha is held captive. And we see uh, Captain Spencer on the telescreen. He's telling Nurse Pinto uh, that uh, uh, she's going to be needed. Uh, Samantha will be needed, that is. Uh, she's got to be converted. You know, she's got to have an alien clone made of her uh, so that the imitator can then get close to the doctor and kill him because yeah. he's starting to realize he's a pain in the neck. Sure. Just then the doctor enters with a couple of policemen and they're escorting this air traffic controller, the alien air, air traffic controller. Uh, the doctor checks Pinto for a Wiimote and the police restrain her when he finds one. Uh, the doctor reaches into one of her pockets hmm. and takes her freeze pen. So she seems pretty well disabled for now, or is she? Hmm. Uh, the doctor rescues Samantha. He finds the real nurse behind a secret panel. Meanwhile, evil evil nurse Pinto, uh, she uses she has a ray gun hidden somewhere on her, uh, and she's washing her hands and drying them and stuff. And the policeman's watching her, but uh, but she manages to use her having her back turned to him as a concealment for the ray gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she uses it on him, and it doesn't end well for him, of course. Uh, she's going to kill the alien air traffic controller. Then she calls him a traitor. But he moves fast and pushes her little remote control button, and she melts into a puddle of goo. <laughs> and uh, so it's a pretty pretty understandable now why he was so <laughs> willing to talk earlier. Uh, not something you'd want to have happen to you, I don't think. It, it, I mean, as, as deaths go, it does seem like a fairly quick one, but uh, it isn't, <laughs> it's not a very pretty one. I would, I would be interested to see... The treatment it got in the actual, in the actual show, you know, in the animation, it was uh, pretty, uh, uh, not by any means the goriest thing I've seen, but it was, was a little nasty. (laughs) So the real nurse Pinto begins to recover. The doctor says, uh, give it a few minutes, you'll be fine. And the doctor is intrigued by some papers he's found here in the, uh, in the med lab, but he gets distracted uh, because Samantha tells him now, that Jamie pinched her ticket to Rome, <laughs> and the doctor realizes that now all three of his companions are in trouble. <laughs> She's on that plane that's supposedly going to Rome, but is actually going to outer space. Uh, and back in outer space, uh, Jamie's tied up in a chair. Uh, the inspector comes in, and um, he at first he just he just seems to be the inspector that we all know and love. 
he toys with Jamie a little bit before revealing finally that he's actually the very clever director. <laughs> and then uh, they're talking about the, the plane's going to go back and pick up all the remaining aliens at Gatwick, uh, and they're going to be out of there, out, out of Earth, good and for all. Uh, and we see the plane uh, sort of flop out of the landing bay <laughs> and point back down towards the Earth. Back at air traffic control, the doctor points out these papers that he was interested in. Um, the records of 25 people who work at uh, Gatwick. Um, and his thesis or theory is that each one of these has been taken over by chameleons. Mm -hmm. So he tells the commandant that he has to get aboard this very last plane that's going out. Because uh, after that, who knows where they're going and yeah, there's no technology in 1960s or to, <laughs> to follow once this last plane leaves. So the doctor asked the air traffic controller if he could if he could become somebody else. You know, now that he's been turned into one human, could he could he take on the form of another? And the guy says, "Yeah, some of our people have been processed twice." <laughs> doctor uh, doctor starts to plan a plan here that he's going to pretend that he's actually an alien imitating himself uh, and get on board the plane that way. Uh, and he tells the commandant that while he's doing that, while the doctor is doing that, uh, the commandant needs to find where all of these original humans are that are that all the Gatwick imitators are modeled after. You know, they've, they're all around here somewhere, <laughs> and they've got to be found. Um, the commandant says, of course, and get those fearful things off their arms. But the doctor says, no, no, no. Uh, he goes on to explain uh, that they, they have to be found, but you don't want to tamper with these, uh, with these Wiimotes because that's, that's what you, the threat that you can hold hey. over your head there. In the medical lab, a doctor is talking to Nurse Pinto, explaining his plan, and uh, Captain Blade comes in with a gun. And uh, the Nurse Pinto uh, understands the plan well enough to tell Blade that uh, this doctor here is actually uh, the former fake air traffic controller, uh, and uh, Meadows is his name. Um, but the doctor is is the alien who was previously imitating Meadows because the doctor became too suspicious of him. So he kidnapped the doctor and so forth. And Blade has mixed feelings about this because he doesn't like losing somebody in air traffic control, which shouldn't be such a big deal because they're just about to make their very last flight out of mm -hmm. there anyway. But he is glad that we have possession of the doctor's brain. <laughs> so uh, the doctor tries to do a little gambit with Blade here, tries to trick him into revealing where all the other humans are stored. Uh, but Blade doesn't quite fall for it. You know, he, he, uh, he Blade says that uh, Meadows' original should be uh, hidden somewhere, and the uh, doctor says it's in a safe place, and, but Blade wants it to be with the others, and doctor says, tell me where that is, and I'll have it transferred. <laughs> doesn't quite work. Um, and he, after Blade leaves, he and Nurse Pinto briefly talk about whether or not they're Roos succeeded and uh, they're not sure what to think <laughs> uh, they might have not they might not have played it well enough but they just can't tell at this point 
Uh, in air traffic control, the commandant uh, approves the takeoff of the very last alien plane, and they watch it vanish off the radar. And the com- commandant tells the airport police uh, chief that uh, he's got to get all his people on this. Uh, they're running out of time. Then there's a minute or two of some inconclusive stuff where, uh, you know, we've seen that Jean noticed some papers in the med lab, but she doesn't know if they're relevant yet, you know, so forth. A little bit of filler here, I think. (laughs) Nothing too bad. On the plane, Captain Blade tells the doctor uh, and uh, Nurse Pinto that, uh, Owing to the complete success of our operation, living space on our satellite has had to be used for our cargo. Uh, so they're reallocating quarters, and they're to report to the accommodation center. Hey. And now they're starting to get a little bit leery. You know, they're they're wondering if they're really pulling anything off here. Back in uh, uh, on the satellite, uh, the director, who was formerly the inspector, or well, who was the alien impersonating the inspector. Uh, who is actually, well, never mind. <laughs> you know what I mean. It's the director alien. He's calibrating the new improved Jamie, you know, making sure he can talk properly and so forth. And this uh, alien Jamie, who is in, inheriting some of Jamie's memories and knowledge from the process, he warns the director about the doctor. He says he is not of this earth or of this century. He has traveled through time and space. His knowledge is even greater than ours. And the way these guys have talked about humans previously, that's got to really sting to (laughs) to have to say that. So Blade decides he's got to be destroyed, and he tells the director this. The director, though, says uh, the the doctor uh, has to live, but he's going to live as one of the aliens. And Blade says, you will regret it. But the director just says, "You have your orders." <laughs> so yeah, the aliens. Uh, Blade Blade is smarter than his own director. That's, uh, that's <laughs> always a problem. I'm not. I'm not saying I have that problem. I actually have pretty good bosses. So if if they happen to be listening to this podcast, that wasn't a slam <laughs> against you guys. In the in the satellite in the space station here, uh, the doctor's looking for the accommodation center, and he and Pedro run into Captain Blade, and they say, "We're carrying out your instructions." Uh, when actually, of course, what they're doing is snooping, but he's trying to put a good face on it. And Blade says, my instructions don't apply to you. You two won't be needing living space, <laughs> which uh, is a pretty good cliffhanger line. Mm-hmm. And of course, then they're uh, they're surrounded by some of the they live looking guys, the undisguised aliens. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> So episode six, and after the recap, you know, Captain Blade has figured out that the doctor and Nurse Pinto are still human. Back at the airport, the police are searching everywhere they can to find the zombie versions of the bodies or the original versions, I guess. But <laughs> And this is pretty funny. Like, if you're ever in an airport and you hear this, the commandant, you know, over the public address system in the airport announces that all airport personnel have special instructions to follow immediately. And all passengers have absolutely nothing to worry about. (laughs) Yeah, if you hear that announcement, you might want to uh, start looking for the next door. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I think I would be at least a a little off kilter, you know, (laughs) hearing that uh, everybody in the airport uh, grind to a halt. (laughs) 
<laughs> but uh, all passengers, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> We're just having a sack race. And we see cops searching around. <laughs> I noticed <laughs> at least one shot of some cops leaving a building is a copy-paste from the first episode. <laughs> so they were, and since that was like six episodes ago, I think they were just hoping you didn't notice. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, they, they slid it past me anyway. <laughs> but I will say, I think overall, you know, the animation is pretty good, and they do put a lot of work into the directing, and you get things like shots where the camera is moving, which, you know, I mean, of course, in modern animation, you can do that. It's not that big a deal, but just the fact that they took the effort to think about that and do it where they could have just had everything be a set shot, you know, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So overall, I'm, I think the animation is pretty good. Back on the spaceship, the doctor and Nurse Pinto are brought to the inspector, who is now the body for the director. Um, and I notice, I think it's true here and elsewhere, well, he's the director, his glasses are off, at least in the animation. Um, we've always seen him with glasses. Um, and I think they kind of differentiate it that way, so you kind of know when he's, he is and isn't the actual inspector. Ah, I uh, I did not uh, catch that. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. And Jamie is now handling communications, and it's kind of funny because as he talks, the doctor points out that he doesn't have his Scottish accent, which is kind of humorous because I'm not actually sure what Fraser Hines' normal accent is, but they, you know, he was hired in part because he could do a Scottish accent. So uh, <laughs> the fact that he's not doing one now and that the doctor points it out is just kind of humorous. Although, and it's, I mean, there's even a benefit for the actor for people to know that because I remember Scotty from Star Trek, um, that actor had a lot of problems getting hired to roles after he was on Star Trek because everyone thought he was Scottish and he wasn't. Um, (laughs) so the doctor now and I I think this is really clever I like this a lot in the story he starts spreading dissent among the aliens by pointing out that essentially there are two different classes of aliens there are the aliens like the director and other key people and their originals you know the the humans that they've used they're using the bodies of are on board the spaceship but everyone else's originals are still down at the airport. So if something happens to them, they're going to be in trouble. Yeah, it's, uh, it's worth a shot. Yeah. So. Well, and also I like it, and Tetris has been pretty good about this. You know, it's unlike uh, some Star Trek episodes, et cetera. I like it when they realize that, oh, all aliens aren't going to think exactly the same. And, you know, when you point out to an alien that they're getting screwed, you know, they might have an opinion about that. Um, so and the doctor bluffs that all the original bodies have been found at the airport but he can't tell them where they were found so that's a little bit of a problem Uh, but he tells them to check with the airport if they don't believe him at the airport when they're contacted by the spaceship the commandant realizes the doctor must be bluffing and he supports him by claiming they found the bodies but he also can't say where he has this really lame excuse about well the police found the bodies but they haven't told me where they were yet and so okay (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile sam but i will also i like that about the story like the commandant's not an idiot he realizes what the doctor is doing um, and tries to help him out. So that's that's good. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sam and the assistant have been investigating, and they realize that Chameleon has a large number of cars. 
that must be where the bodies are. <laughs> I have a real problem here. <laughs> As we'll see, you know, yes, the bodies are hidden in cars. but And right now they're talking about like 25 bodies or something. But we keep hearing about 50,000 young people who've been kidnapped. So I'm like, wait, do they have 50,000 cars? I mean, what's going on? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it, it, it took me a little bit to figure that out but i, I think i think the 50,000 are the little doll sized humans in drawers up in the satellite i guess so some people are in cars and some people are in drawers yeah but no that's true but still it's a little weird like if um, so the then the next question would be why didn't you make these people dolls right um instead of leaving them around in cars all over the place right so, uh, i think maybe it's because they need to be full size to be actual, uh, to have duplicates, yeah. you know, like the, the guys up in the spaceship, they haven't made duplicates with them yet. I guess that's storage. I guess that makes I sense. No. That or you're, I, I'm, you're an apologist not, for the aliens. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm not going to spend a great deal of my time trying <laughs> to, uh, trying to cover up Dr. Who's, uh, mysteries. <laughs> no, I think what you're saying makes sense, but I still think it's funny to think about where did they put 50,000 cars. <laughs> um, so on the spaceship, they conclude that the bodies haven't actually been found. And I also like it. You know, the Daleks have been good about this too, right? I always like it when the bad guys are not fooled by stupid you know, stories. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is fun when, uh, when they actually... Uh... I mean, it, yeah, it can go both ways. It's fun when they fall for something. I mean, it's fun when they don't. So, yeah. Either way. <laughs> so they decide to continue with processing the humans, and they're about to process the doctor, but he's asking annoying questions about what will happen when the alien crew starts to disintegrate from the bodies being found and them, you know, removing the Wii controllers from their arms. And then he does what's just the... You know, the classic Troughton thing, right, the, the, that he always does is he sabotages the control panel. Whatever control panel's around, he finds a way to sabotage it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, I noticed that. I was thinking, you know, I haven't even seen a full season of this Doctor yet, and this is already sort of becoming his go-to move. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes, like, a screwdriver and, you know, reaches behind him and sort of crosses some connections or whatever. And that causes the uh, control panel to blow up. Well, they do have an alien there ready to receive the doctor's essence. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help thinking that that, uh, that line from Doctor Strange Love. I uh, I do not avoid women, Mandrake, but I do deny them my essence. <laughs> So at the airport, uh, the women, you know, Sam and the assistant, find the cars with the bodies. And uh, the, now at this point, the air traffic controller that the doctor had sort of turned, right, he had started spilling things and being nice to them. But, you know, he tries to stop the women because he's worried about getting disintegrated. And uh, this is actually like this. Sam, uses, she has high heels on, and she uses one of her high heels to kind of stab him in the leg. And this is actually a, a realistic uh, martial arts move that <laughs> I once. Well, okay, so I've written about this. But so my dad, I was a teenager and I was taking uh, karate. And as, as I do when I usually get into things, I got really obsessive about it. And 
my parents were annoyed at how much time I was taking up taking karate. And one day in the kitchen, my dad grabs my arms. You know, he puts his arms around me from the back. And he's a big guy. He says, well, now what can your karate do? <laughs> well, just like what happened here, I had actually been practicing this move, practicing this move where you just take one foot and slam it down. <laughs> so I, uh. I slammed it down on his toe. <laughs> and he screamed and later he had like a week or two of his toe being black and blue and he didn't know what I'd done it anyway. so, so this is a realistic move that actually works um, and uh, they have a fight and then Bobby's come to the rescue meanwhile on the spaceship they get a call from the airport saying they've actually found their bodies but the director still doesn't believe them so they decide to prove it which is that's pretty cool if you think about it. So at the airport, they take the game controller off one of the wrists, and in the spaceship, that dude suddenly disintegrates. So they just killed somebody <laughs> to make their point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they didn't have a lot of choice, I guess. But. This is somebody who is uh, complicit in the kidnapping of 50,000 yeah. uh, humans. So, you know, there's you got to weigh all the angles. <laughs> <laughs> so now Captain Blade... You know, he doesn't want to be disintegrated, so he confronts the director with his ray gun. And the director says, well, you said the bodies were hidden well enough that they wouldn't be found until the life was drained from them. Now, here I've got another logic problem, right? Which is, okay, yeah. so these humans were going to be there until the life was drained from them. But once the life was drained from them, now all these people are going to disintegrate? Or they're hoping, maybe they hope to find some more bodies before then, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, the, this, this was kind of just, as far as I could tell, this was the first we've heard this aspect of it. The best guess I have is there's some kind of ongoing energy transfer, like, uh, like that one episode, we just talked about it recently, where uh, the scientists had this little underground basement where they'd bring the uh, the poor people down and they'd suck the life energy out of them. Oh, it was a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you, you're the one who brought it up just a few weeks ago. It was, uh, oh. oh, what else was going on? It was that society, well, I, I was going to say, it was that society where there were uh, some rich people and then there were a bunch of poor people who lived outside the complex. But oh, that's pretty yeah. much. You know, I always have a hard time remembering the name of that. But yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, right. I had to go look up to remember the damn name of it, but I know which one. Oh, yeah. and they were, they were impressed because like they could siphon huge amounts of energy from the doctor, right, or right, something right. like that. Yeah, but yeah, that's the closest guess I can come up with, or that I bothered trying to come up with because yeah. I wasn't going to put a lot of thought in. But it does imply they're going to have to find like another fifty thousand, you know, after their. Their life energy is sucked out. That's that's something I was wondering about, too. I mean, uh, you know, if you're talking about humans on Earth, there are roughly 8 billion of us or so <laughs> at this point, I think. But they did say that their race has been dying off, so maybe yeah. they're down to 50,000 people. <laughs> so Jamie contacts the airport, and the commandant at the airport wants to speak to the doctor and says, if he can't, then Captain Blade will be eliminated next. <laughs> Blade, not wanting to be eliminated, uses his ray gun to force the inspector to release the doctor from the body switching contraption. 
And the doctor insists that the airport doctor, uh, Nurse Pinto, be freed first, and then he talks to the commandant. And he asks the commandant to stand by while he negotiates. And uh, then, you know, talking to Blade, he guarantees the aliens continued existence if they will return the 50,000 young people to full-size life. Now, I don't, I mean, I don't know how they continue to exist if their source of energy is gone, but, you know. Um, yeah, well, they'll, they'll have to do it in stages. First, they'll have to get the 50,000 people back to Earth, then they'll have to take them into the medical lab so that they can do the reverse transformation and so forth. Yeah, it'll be a whole process. Well, but then, you know, these aliens won't have a source of energy, so I'm not sure how this works. But Well, they, they, they won't have this source of energy. <laughs> the doctor, soon enough, the doctor's going to say, I might even be able to give you a couple of right. So the inspector says it's impossible to return the humans to full size. The necessary machines are on their planet. But Blade says he's lying. The planes have all the necessary machinery to return them to full size. And, yeah, I mean, kind of what we were talking about, Blade now asks, well, what kind of existence are we going to have? And the doctor is basically like, well, your scientists are going to have to figure out something. Except he doesn't, he doesn't have a great answer. He does say later he can give him a couple <laughs> of pointers, but, you know. He he's not really giving them anything in this exchange. <laughs> They're just gonna yeah. have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, all he's really giving them is not uh, not liquefying them. Yeah, which is something. <laughs> uh, the director isn't buying the doctor's deal, so Blade kills the director with a ray gun. <laughs> and the doctor tells the commandant that negotiations have been successful. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the doctor is brought to where the real Jamie and the inspector have been stored. And, uh, you know, and he opens these, um, you know, basically lockers and gets them out. And the doctor and company are going to be returning in the plane. This is when the doctor tells Blade he can maybe give one or two ideas to their scientists. Back on Earth, the commandant is getting calls from everyone. <laughs> like, you know, like One of the ones which you absolutely know would happen is someone's like complaining about their plane being late, and he's like, everybody's plane was late. <laughs> um, and the doctor asks for his TARDIS uh, police box back, and the commandant orders that it be returned to him. And Jamie and Sam say their goodbyes, and you know, I mean, they were so set up to be a couple in this, and, you know, as I mentioned, they were hoping that she would agree to be a companion and she, and she declined and you know they have mm. a good relationship i think she's a good character i think it's too bad that she um you know didn't stay on yeah it, it would have been fun to see the live actress who was playing her because she's she's fun just in the animation from the voice that we get and from the from the animation that they did for her uh she seems like she could be a fun ongoing character uh, yeah so oh well and now we get, I mean, it doesn't matter in the animation, but what in reality was the pre-film segment, because as we recall, the actors playing Collie and Ben were laid off after the, at the second episode. So what they did was they pre-recorded some stuff here where they say goodbye to the doctor. And, uh, you know, and it turns out this is the exact day that they originally left with the doctor. So it's a convenient time for them yeah. to stay. And, uh, and Ben, Ben had, had rather urgently to get back to his ship, I think. Right, so, uh, right. so this is uh, pretty fortunate for him because if he came back like 
a week later, you know, that would have been a wall for a week and he'd be in right. hot water then. And all I can say is at least they got a better send off than Dodo, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. It's uh you know, this uh this shows penchant for uh dismissing the companions just out of nowhere is uh not one of my favorite aspects of it, but uh oh well, what are you gonna do? <laughs> well, one of the problems for the producers is you know, the at least the way they were doing it then, the contracts don't line up exactly with their stories, right? So even, as you recall, um, I'd mentioned the last episode that Hardnell was in, The Tenth Planet, He his contract was up. So for that episode, he was a guest star. Uh, and they had to pay him differently and, you know, treat him differently as a result, uh, right? So that's what you get into is it's like, well, if this is the point where you continue or in the contract and then if you want them, but if you want them to be around for the next four episodes, you'd have to pay them more as like a guest star, right? That, you know, and that's where they, you know, we get into this, yeah. this silliness, you know? And you, you mentioned too, I think that, uh, I don't know if it continued down to the present day, but back then I think, uh, there was some sort of perverse incentive for producers to replace right. previous producers' casting decisions with their own. Yeah, oh, that's uh, always true. Get yep. money yep. out of it. Yeah, you want to create your own characters and get rid of the old characters. Yep. Uh, so, well, uh, you know, um, what do you think? <laughs> well, uh, there is one thing that here that you didn't put at the very end. They noticed that. Uh, the TARDIS isn't where they thought it was going to be. Uh, so instead of rocketing back off into time and space, we see uh, Jamie and the Doctor uh, head off to look around Gatwick Airport for the TARDIS. <laughs> yep, that's true. And I have no idea if that's going to be a part of the next story or what. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that is a lot. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting way to end. It's something that we usually don't see. It's almost always the end of the story, and they're off in transit to somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So regarding my opinions, I'd say I have mixed opinions. Uh, I I liked the setup for it a lot. Some of the stuff is fun, like the the plane never reaches Rome or wherever because instead it's going up to a mothership in space and uh, you know, so, some of the, some of the setup stuff is really fun. And then, uh, some of the stuff just seems like it was sort of thrown in, uh, you know, for convenience, like, you know, the miniature is miniaturization of people. And, uh, I don't know, there, there are just various things like that where the payoff for me wasn't, wasn't as intriguing as I had hoped from the setup, mm. but for all that. I'd say it's still a pretty average story arc for Doctor Who. I mean, it's not one of the worst, um, but it's also not one of the best. It's just kind of in the middle there somewhere for me. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, we don't have any bad acting, and they actually have some pretty good actors. You know, the guy who was number two mm -hmm. in, in um, The Prisoner and uh, and, you know, you know, other people who've been around in a lot of different shows and, and nobody does a bad job. Also, the mm -hmm. women get pretty good roles in this one. And there's no real like, you know, women aren't like screaming or, or whatever. And they're, <laughs> you know, yeah. You stuff. got, uh, 
Jean and Nurse Pinto and uh, Samantha, they're all uh, uh, all pretty competent. Even even the bad guy women, uh, there's that Anne, who mm. was the uh, kiosk attendant. <laughs> uh, you know, she uh, she seemed to be fairly effective. She caught uh, Jamie snooping around the satellite. And, uh, right. So, yeah, yeah, the women made out all right in this one, I guess. And I, I think the story is interesting and, and complex. And uh, so overall, I think it's good. I, I think that... You know, what it's missing, as is always the case in, in, you know, when we determine these things, is it's just missing a really good bad guy. I mean, you know, uh, Captain Blade is okay. Uh, the inspector, mm-hmm. they didn't really do anything with him when he when he became the bad guy, the director. Um, so, you know. Yeah, not we d- much. Yeah, we, just, we don't have a good bad guy, either from the sort of Tlatoxel sort of thing, or even the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the underwater, uh, what's Oh, the crazy professor. Yeah. You know, nothing in the world can stop me now. You know, um, (laughs) we just, we don't, you know, so, I mean, I think always it's helpful if you have a a good actor playing a, a meaty role like that. And these guys are all fine. There's nothing wrong. It's just, they don't have, you know, nobody gets a chance to kind of swing for the fences and in that kind of manner. Um, yeah, but, uh, but you know, so I, I think it's a, you know, I guess a, a completely adequate and reasonable story that isn't, isn't great, but isn't embarrassing. You know, if I showed a friend it, it's not like they'd be like, Oh, I'm never going to watch this again. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I guess we kind of come down to kind of worth watching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a complex story and a complex whole thing. And, you know, you can debate some of those things. So, um, next up is going to be the last story of Trouton's first season, the evil of the Daleks. <laughs> it seems like it's gone by pretty fast. I, I think in some ways, maybe having almost all the film episodes lost, um, makes it, I don't know. It, it gives me a certain detachment because mm. it's like I know there are real people. This is showing us originally, but now we're not seeing that. We're just seeing, you know, what can be put together from the audio and from the, you know, from the animation, which uh, uh, sometimes is pretty faithful to the way the characters looked, and sometimes not so convincing. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but it has been. Uh, it's been intermittently entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> well, after the next one, I think we'll have more live action, but I haven't gone through to see what the ratios will be. Um, no. And I don't, you know, just, well, all these animated ones I've never seen before. I know nothing about the next one. I haven't read anything about it. Uh, well, I will say, yeah. uh, you know, maybe it'll. Uh, I did read a little bit in Wikipedia that, you know, it's one of those that some people have rated as one of the best uh, stories or Dalek stories or whatever. So, and and yeah. as we mentioned, you know, I actually was quite fond of Power of the Daleks that started mm-hmm. um, Troughton's uh, thing. The other thing is that I'll, I'll mention ahead of time, and of course we'll we'll talk about when we get there. This is the last Dalek story for a long time because Terry Nation was trying to sell the uh, Dalek series to the Americans, so he stopped allowing the BBC to use them. Um, really that's an interesting uh uh i i have a feeling that that's something that 
most contracts nowadays would uh, not make possible. Yeah, but, uh, there was it was kind of weird around. back then where the writer can completely own these characters and all that. I mean, I, yeah, I don't think that would happen too often now if you were working for a series. You know, it's usually called work for hire, and at least in the U.S., I mean, if you create now again we have the producer thing the producers get to benefit from the characters they added but like a writer mm-hmm. i mean I, I think even uh, i'm and and i'm totally just recalling random things so I, I may be wrong about this but like with et uh, i think it was spielberg's wife or girlfriend who wrote the script and described et and then they had a kind of a lawsuit about whether she sort of, you know, owned the character or not, which is similar to the Daleks, right? Where Terry Nation had sort of described the Daleks, but it was the designer, Ray Cusick, who designed them. And his mm. design, I mean, Nation had a very, very vague description. And so it was really Terry Nation's design that made them successful but or i'm sorry ray cusick's design that made them successful but terry nation owned them right and mm-hmm. and ray cusick didn't really get anything even though he was the one um who designed these incredibly you know successful and lucrative um yeah. aliens so um right. anyway yep yep that's how these things go so well we'll see what we think of the last alex story for a while uh, next week <laughs> all right 